Oh, I'm hosting. You're <laughs> hey hosting. guys, welcome to Movie Change Up. We're back with our forgotten movies once again. Uh, we have been doing these a lot. It's been really fun bringing up some old, underrated, maybe maybe forgotten, maybe controversial movies that have been forgotten for a reason. Uh, first off, if you're listening on YouTube, give us some likes. Give us subscribers. We need those numbers to come up. You know, we get like two live viewers each episode. So hit subscribe, hit that bell so you can see when you go live and maybe watch along. If you do watch along, you get to see your comments on the screen. So watch out for those. First off, I'm going to introduce here our our consulting judge. He's been on a winning streak. You know, he beat me last last game, barely. It's been disputed. I know if you count the legal votes, I won last time. But uh, technically, he is the, the winner. So introduce yourself, Johnny. Say hello. Yeah, don't think if I ever lose that I won't pull a campaign to dispute all of the votes. Um, that's on brand, I guess, or off brand. But um, my name's Johnny Dupe. I am the other judge today. I'm excited for some of these uh, some of these movies. We tried to pick some that um, are kind of close to home for a couple of the uh, or that are two uh, competing today, as well as some of our. Not so much favorites. There's one in here that I really enjoy, um, and I know there's one Tristan, uh, it's a personal favorite of his too. So it'll be uh, interesting to see what you guys have for us. All right, and let's go back to our competitors here. We've got first off, we've got our our little our founder here, our co-founder of the podcast. He's he's doing pretty good, you know. He's not not Johnny level yet. He's getting there. But introduce yourself, Joe. Say hello and tell us what you're thinking about this episode. Yeah, I'm Joe. Uh, like Tristan said, I co-founded this podcast, but I, I've been like a little bit on a cold streak lately. I started off really hot, but haven't been doing so well. So I had to change my mentality. I'm wearing my Mary Sithmas shirt because I coming in, I got to think like a Sith. I'm just going to come in. I'm ruthless and tear Bobby apart. And that's my mentality. You yeah. guys all have Star Wars today, but I'm going yeah. with Lamar Jackson because that game last night was awesome for anyone who watched it. No, he's a Jedi, so works out. Exactly. That's true. You heard him for a second there. Our last competitor here trying to face Joe, see if he can take down the co-founder in our forgotten movies here. It's Bobby back again. Yeah. I'm Say back. Hello, Bobby. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited um, to, to be back for these forgotten movies. Uh, competed with the first one. Got my, got a win. I'm looking to continue that. I know Joe said he's going to be ruthless, but uh, I'm not going to hold back and uh, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. I want to see some passion today, competitors. Yeah, let's hope nobody holds back. We got to get blood. You know, this is our pre-Christmas episode. We're coming up on the holiday week next week, so you got to get out of the anger before we get to the holiday yeah, week. Nothing you know? Christmas like blood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it Christmas died. red. You know, yeah. red is blood. Blood is uh, is red, and that's Christmas colors. So. Yep. That's it. All right. Good time. All right. Let's go through these movies here. We've, we're doing the Forgotten Movies once again, so you might not have heard of a lot of these, but go ahead and give them a Google. Maybe watch the trailer if you want to get some context. Look them up on YouTube. The first, you Google some we'll of do, these. Do, the it all, do, it all after, do it all after the, after the show. For sure, it's for better, sure. It's better not to know. Our first movie here is Devil Went Down to Georgia from 2008. It has a 54% on Rotten Tomatoes. Directed by David Slade and starring Josh Gad in a, a dramatic role. Why, why are we giving them this much information? Oh, yeah, we don't have to do that yet. That's true. We can just go through the titles. <laughs> <laughs> leave, you on, leave you on a cliffhanger here. Our first one is Devil Went Down to Georgia from 2008. Our second is A Trinity of Lies from 2011. Our third is Street Sharks the Movie from 2005. Pretty, pretty iconic one right there. 
Not so iconic is the War Around Christmas from 2006. 0% Rotten Tomatoes. Didn't give you that little hint. Talkies from 1972. Creamed from 1997. And How to Get Away with It from 1993. All right. And if you want to go through the rules, uh, we can set that up and get ready to go. Yeah. And today's competitors also have seven rules. They have to use one per pitch. And those rules today are... One must include a character made famous by Kira Knightley, the icon. Um, my, our second role today is you must cast yourself as the lead role. Our third role is uh, one must be directed by Wes Anderson. I'm looking forward to that one. Um, number four is one must include time travel. Number five is one must be directed by and star the four nominees of the 88th Academy Awards. Um our penultimate rule is make one a horror movie. And our final one is you must cast a comedic actor or actress in their first dramatic role. So those are our rules today. And you got our movies. So uh, who, who won the toss? Bobby, it gets to choose uh, what movie we're doing first and who goes first. Yeah, I think I'm going to start out with one that um, just based on title alone, uh, it's a little close to home is, is a tree of lies. Is that's, that's kind of funny that I know. Um, but yeah. I'm going to I'm going to go first. All right. All right. Trinity of Lies from 2011 has a 35% on Rotten Tomatoes. Lucas Black plays Rob, uh, Rob Michael, a seemingly normal accountant working for a senior retirement center. He lives a very secret double life. He's actually a meth dealer who robs from residents at the senior center to fund his operation. But his life starts to spin out of control when work gets a little too close to home. All right, Bobby, you said he wanted to go first. So what do you got for this? Uh, so for this one, one take a little bit of a different approach because the first one was heavily criticized because of Luke Lucas had like heavy narration because he's alone a lot. Um, he uh, has like an inner monologue and he breaks the fourth wall. Uh, so I went a very different route. And so I cast myself in the lead role. Uh, but in order to make that um, viable, the lead character is going to be a mute. Um, and he has a um, kind of a working partner played by Lucas Hedges, who's going to be named Anthony. Uh, and he's going to be do most of the talking and the dealings while, while Rob does kind of the dealings back behind um, with the numbers and uh, running the businessness. Uh, my director is going to be Henry Dun Dunham, who did uh, the standoff at Sparrow Creek, which was a really good thriller that came out a couple of years ago. And it was his, um, uh, it was his debut, which he wrote and directed. Um, and this is going to be kind of a lower budget kind of action thriller, which is what that movie was. It had very tense, quiet scenes, which is perfect for the mute character that I have in this one. Um, so similar plot, but then Anthony handles all the talking. So Rob's drug business is booming, but he runs into a problem when his grandparents move into the retirement home and his clients try to hook them on the meth he's selling. Uh, this causes, causes Rob to try to go clean to get out, get out of the business. As Anthony is relying on it for money, it causes a rift between the two of them, leading to a final fight between the two of them. Uh, during the fight, Anthony ends up being thrown down an elevator shaft, but this causes the police to arrest Rob at the end of the movie for manslaughter. So it's kind of a quiet, tense thriller for most of the movie, leads to kind of a, a breakup between the two partners, which leads to this final fight at the end where they both kind of get their comeuppance, uh, one obviously getting killed and the other being arrested for, uh, for manslaughter of his own partner. All right. Very interesting. It's always interesting when you see uh, put yourself in the lead role. All right, uh, Joe, what do you got for this one? 
All right, yeah, I went in a little bit different of a direction. So the rule I used for mine is I use the nominees from the 88th Academy Awards. So my director is going to be Adam McKay. My Rob Michael is going to be Brian Cranston. Uh, two of the residents uh, the first are going to be played by nominees as well. The first resident is going to be the character of Sonny, who's going to be played by Sylvester Stallone. And the other resident, Doris, is going to be played by Charlotte Rampling. And then one of the nurse characters will be played by Rachel McAdams. So when you look at the synopsis of this movie and you watch this movie, you have one thought. This movie should have been a comedy, especially if you change meth to weed. Uh, it's about a guy robbing from old people. There's no way it can be that dramatic. It has to be funny. So the plot of my movie is bumbling accountant Rob Michael, which Cranston will play similarly to his character from Malcolm in the Middle, who works at Trinity Health Senior Communities in a suburb of Detroit. One day he notices how many of the residents smoke weed. He also notices many of them have the memory of a goldfish. Rob, who is trying to afford to get his own mother, played by Cloris Leachman, to move into the facility, decides to steal weed from the residents and sell it back to them. He enlists the help of one of the residents, Sonny, played by Stallone, to help him steal weed. Eventually, one of the older female residents who keeps an eye on everyone, Doris, played by Charlotte Rampling, notices what they're doing, so Rob and Sonny work together to get her moved to a different facility. As the operation grows, Rob gets his daughter Sarah, played by McAdams, a nurse, a job at the hospital to help. Eventually, they get enough money to help to afford for his mom to move in. However, the operation is too big. They can't stop it. The mom is a big Bible toter who thinks weed is the devil's lettuce. The mom realizes what is going on, but doesn't think her doofus son is involved. She rats the operation out, and everyone, including her son and granddaughter, are arrested. A lot of the comedy in my movie comes from the interactions of the characters, including the run-ins with the manager of the facility, played by Will Ferrell. We have comedic scenes of them sneaking around, grabbing the weed from right in front of the blind and deaf old people. Uh, there's a scene where a 100-plus-year-old lady thinks Cranston's character is a nurse, and he has to rub lotion on her. And there's also a scene where Sonny has to flirt with uh, Rob's mom, played by Cloris Leachman, to distract her. And that's my pitch. All right. Two very different takes on that movie. <laughs> I'm interested to hear you guys argue it out with two different takes, but I do have a question before you start. Uh, I definitely did not watch this movie, <laughs> but it was one of the ones on the list I avoided. But I looked it up on the Wikipedia, and I watched some clips online, and... I saw on Wikipedia that critics are very divided over a specific element of the movie, and that was in the sexual relationship between Rob and one of the seniors at his center. So I wanted to see what you guys did with his relationships there. Did you have a romance in your movie, and was it with someone in the center, or did you just completely remove that? I'll start with Bobby on this. So mine is like a, it's a relationship with one of his clients who's a coworker there so it's still someone in the building and it's kind of to show a different side of the mute character like that he can actually build this relationship um but it, it's not definitely not with one of one of the one of the uh residents but i wanted to keep that on that element. all right what about you joe yeah my movie i pictured my lead is like maybe divorced or maybe separated from his wife and he's just like a romantic relationship is not really what i have involved with my movie so i didn't include it it just didn't really fit what i wanted to go with like, there's the scene of, like, him having to rub lotion on the old lady, but that's not really part of the... All right, reference to that scene from the movie, I get that. Yeah. All right, uh, John, you got any questions for him? Yeah, I have a similar question, but kind of a different alley. It, in the first movie, um, it really does... Uh, it was an interesting choice by Joe to have his character divorced because the first one has a lot of family drama between Rob and his wife because Rob is caught... 
um, having an affair with his wife's twin sister. Um, will this uh, will this element be in your uh, your movie at all? Um, like the uh, you know home uh, home troubles. Oh yeah, I can answer that. So the reason in my movie that they are separated is because instead of him cheating on her twin sister, she cheated on him with his twin brother. So it's a nice little flip on that. So okay. Um, and with mine, it still keeps the relationship aspect, and there's drama just because they're coworkers, and it and it, there's the that aspect, but it changes what the drama drama is surrounding. Um, um, if he's in this drug business, she wants him to get out because um, she, you know, we think she thinks he's smarter than that. Uh, but it's basically I like having different characters to play off of the mute character who can kind of uh, take take the scenes, you know, better little maybe a little better actors and actresses. Um, so that's why he has a friend in the work business and he has a relationship outside of it. So interesting. All right. Uh, I'm very curious to hear you guys argue this out. I'm leading a little bit one direction, but not very significantly. So I want to start with Bobby. Why is your movie better than Joe's? So I just think it would be, it would be, it's a very, very different type of movie. It's a simple thriller, but when you have a character who, who does talk, it creates a lot of tension and it creates a lot of, um, you're reading into what's going on. Um, you really like, I, I just, I think it's a little bit more nuanced and a lot more like Joe sounds like a broad comedy, which they, you know, it would be kind of fun, but I think mine would be a little bit more different and a really like, kind of like a cinephiles movie, this, you know, different type of thriller. It's low budget. It's probably going to like some, some, uh, festivals and all that. That's kind of the one of the movie I make keeping the same vein as this director's one, which got a lot of acclaim. At all at the festival festivals, um, so I just like that different take rather than a broad comedy about people stealing from old from residents and and getting them hooked on drugs. Um, I think that while fun to watch is pretty mean spirited, also um, and not something that we necessarily need right now. Uh, so it, Joe's would be entertaining enough, but I think mine would be a little bit more um, a little bit more groundbreaking. I would say, or at least at least a little bit more interesting for film fans. All right, what about you, Joe? Why is your movie better? Uh, yeah, I think mine's better because I feel like it has a wider appeal. It's like a straight-up comedy where his is just like a guy who, no offense, I mean, you could you can use the same argument for me when I use that rule. It's like your lead's a guy who can't act, and then you bury that by just being like, oh, he doesn't talk. And I feel like that's like a somewhat of a trying to avoid the rule or step aside from the rule. And I don't feel like him being mute really like matches the movie. It's not like, oh, him being mute helps tell this story. It's just like, oh, it's like more introspective and deep. And like, it's just going to be another movie that gets 35% on Rotten Tomatoes. I don't know what about your movie makes it better, changes it. It's not like you took a good movie and it's like, oh, let's tell this good movie in a new, interesting way. It's like, oh, let's tell this bad movie in a different way. So it's just going to be equally bad, but different. That's why I tried to flip it and move it around and change the genre and do something different with it. Because if you kind of do the same thing, but slightly change it, it's just going to be equally bad. Well, the thing with, with my movie, because the first one, as it's described, has a lot of focus specifically on like the drug aspect and the meth dealing and all that. And this is very relationship focused um, between the friend that in his dealer with, you know, there and that. So it's a little bit more, I think it is a little bit more interesting to plies in the original to folks folk that because the plot's relatively, relatively simple. Um, but like, as far as being a little bit more broad, yeah, yeah, like yours is going to be a little bit, bit more odd, but I don't know if that's necessarily a great thing for the, like the type of movie I'm making 
will be something that you can show film class. What can you do if your character can't speak um, and how it's directed? Because uh, like I said, uh, Henry Dunham in his original movie, there are a lot of very good scenes with very small or little dialogue and great character interactions as well throughout the movie. And, and, it's, and I, that's what I was trying to capture with this. I think it's just going to be a straightforward movie that's a that's as far as plot with a lot of instant character work um, and the things things that you read into. So it's not, you know, because he is mute and you're getting a little bit more perspective, you're seeing him crunch the numbers. So you can see like panning to screens and seeing like what's that's going what on. That's what I want to go to a movie for, see a guy type on the computer. But when you see, but it's not like that's the whole movie, but that's how you get like little glimpses into what's going on in his head. Um, the business that he's running, how complicated it can be, um, how he's hiding it. Uh, and then leading to this tension filled, which is, gets released at the end of the movie with this big brawl, because there's really no action throughout the movie. And until I really like that ten- tension thing up, where you see this friendship, friendship just coming to a head, head rand where they, um, where they battle it out. Um, and there, the, the end, thing, end of the standoff at Sparrow uh, Creek, there's a big kind of bloody scene at the end of the movie. Um, and I'm not, it's, it's kind of a similar concept with a diff- whole different plot around it. And I think it would be um, something that people would enjoy at the end. You get that, finally get that tension release. So I, I just think it's a lot more interesting to me. Yeah. A movie that's a slow build with a guy that doesn't talk very much. That's a super low budget. And then there's a big brawl at the end reminds me of brawl at cell block 99. And that movie sucks. Yeah. But that's, that was sucked for very different, different reasons. Um, and I, and I feel, I feel like, with one, because you get a lot of different character, you have you get the relationship aspect that keeps you interested throughout the movie, um, and you're kind of torn at the end of what you think should happen to them. But they, but at the end of the day, they're both really doing the wrong thing by having this business in the first place. So they both kind of get their the payoff at the end for the audience. But um, I, I think it would be good. Yours, like I said, it, I think it yours sounds like it would be fine. It would be a movie, a watchable movie, and I think people would put it on on cable or something like. It sounds like fun. it has a, probably a few funny moments, but nothing that's, that's going to have an impact. Not really a reason to reboot the movie. I mean, yeah, I think I've heard enough, Tristan. Yeah, I think we're good. Uh, I'm pretty – both pretty interesting pitches out here. I'm not going to lie. I, I'm going to probably have to hand this over to my consulting judge to make the final decision. But I do like the – the relationship drama of Bobby's, I think that adds an, a good amount of drama to it. Even though the character is mute, I think that relationship could really pull people through this movie. But I do think that Joe's sounds like it would be a lot of fun. I would like to see Brian Cranston and Beck and do a comedy role. I think it would be fun to see him sort of making a, a joke out of his character of Breaking Bad, the way that he's being a drug dealer and has turned into a comedy. So I like both of these movies, so I'm going to have to push it over to Johnny to make the final call on this one. Yeah, I think for this one, it, it came down to a couple of things. It was close, um, not because both sounded amazing, but because they were just close in terms of quality. I don't think one is too much stronger than the other. But there were a couple aspects that I just think, if I was going to see this movie, I would rather see one. Um, Joe described Bobby's as Cell Block 99, but before Joe actually said the movie he was talking about, I thought he was describing Hush, which is a good movie about a mute person that is kind of a slow build with some horror elements so that leads to the final scene so that's what bobby's movie sounded like um to me i like a good slow burn adam mckay hasn't made a good comedy in 10 years Uh, i know there's comedy aspects in in vice which was disappointing in the big short which 
I thought was a little overrated. Um, Anchorman 2 was like complete trash, and that was the last straight-up comedy he did. For Joe's movie, I wrote Weeds plus Breaking Bad plus Dirty Grandpa, and I just don't need to see those things mesh. That's what it sounds like. So I'm going to go with Bobby um, because I just think his, at least if I'm going to go see one of these, his son's more interesting, even though Bobby muted himself. Oh, even though he is on a podcast, and uh, you'd think that the area you'd want to work on is a voice thing. It's funny because it's the opposite of what Tristan did with his voice. It really is. I'm actually proud of it. Yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go Bobby. Uh, so he goes up one nothing. Yeah, I definitely that was a close that. one. Close one, but I definitely leaned in Bobby's direction a bit. So that makes the score I, one to nothing. Uh, I just want to get that, that makes Joe gets to the next movie. <laughs> Where are we going, Joe? Uh, we're going to go to a movie I've been struggling with all week, and that is Street Sharks the movie. Oh, yeah, you will. All right, Street Sharks the movie. He said he was struggling with it. I can't imagine why. Uh, Street Sharks the movie from 2005. It has 74% on Rotten Tomatoes, so a nice solid fresh, but not anything great. The live-action movie of the short-lived but popular 90s show Street Sharks. Four brothers who are turned into half-shark, half-human superheroes. The movie was praised for its historic jump in CGI technology, but the film fell flat in the box office because the audience for the original show just was not interested. All right, Joe, are you going first? Yeah, I'm going first. All right, what do you got for Street Sharks? All right, so my director is going to be James Gunn. My John, the oldest brother, and the great white shark is going to be played by Shamik Moore from Dope and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. My Bobby, the uh, tiger shark, is and the self-proclaimed ladies' man is going to be played by Skylar Gazondo, who played Jared in Booksmart. And my Clint Bolton, the hammerhead shark, and he's kind of the dumb brother. And this is where my rule comes in because I'm casting myself as uh, Clint Bolton. And then Coop. Uh, the whale shark, kind of the athlete of the family, is going to be played by Charles Melton. Uh, he was in Riverdale and Bad Boys for Life. And then my Dr. Robert Bolton, their father, is going to be played by Nathan Fillion because he's a good James Gunn staple. And then Dr. Luther Paradigm, the main villain of the movie and uh, business partner of Robert Bolton, is going to be played by Michael Rooker, another James Gunn staple. And so the tone of my movie is going to be similar to James Gunn's early work with a touch of comedy. The movie is going to be a little bit closer to Slither than Guardians of the Galaxy because I'm making it more of an R-rated body horror film. Kids today don't know about street sharks and don't care about street sharks. The movie is for people between the ages of 25 and 35 who watched the show. Uh, the original movie was done by Robert Zemeckis, who was coming off Polar Express and tried to make it all motion capture, CGI, and family-friendly, which the OG street sharks fans had outgrew, and that's why they didn't go see the original. And so the plot of my movie loosely follows the pilot of the original show with some slight changes. So the four adopted sons of scientist Robert Bolton are kidnapped by his partner, Dr. Paradigm. He wants to test out his DNA slammer, but he knows they won't ever get approved for human trials. When Robert Bolton refused to test it on himself, Dr. Paradigm decides to use Bolton's sons instead. At first, they don't change. Paradigm thinks he failed. He releases the boys who don't remember anything after being drugged. Over the next few days, they start to notice changes. Their skin becomes rubbery, they're all getting way more muscular, and they turn into monstrous freaks resembling sharks. Paradigm recalibrates his machine and kidnaps Dr. Bolton. The sons start to get their memories back. While dealing with their new changing bodies, they realize they are much stronger but have an insatiable appetite. When they discover their dad is missing, the brothers must team up to stop the evil doctor and save their dad. 
In my version, the brothers who are all in their 20s don't like each other and don't get along. They all say they are brothers by force, not by blood. However, when they all get shark DNA, they slowly realize they have more in common than they thought, and they start work- working together to save their dad. And that's my pitch. Very nice. It's James Gunn take on Street Sharks. I'm interested in that. All right, Bobby, what do you got for Street Sharks? All right, I went in a different direction as far as tone for my movie. Um, so my director for Street Sharks is going to be Sam Raimi. Um, and it's not because of his horror elements. It's more because of the um, kind of cheesiness that I love from his movies that I get from like the Spider-Mans and probably what he's going to do with like the Doctor Strange and have a little horror elements in there a little bit because of my plot. Um, but for my cast, I use the shark's names just because they're more fun. Um, Ripster, the leader who takes everything very seriously, is, is going to be by Vin Diesel. Um, Jab, Ab, the uh, lazy, one, lazy one, played by Jason Siegel. My Streaks, the cool ladies' man, is going to be played by Joe Manganiello. My Big Slamu, uh, the brute of the group, is going to be played by Dave Bautista. Um, my Dr. Robert Bolton, their dad who, had, who created the gene manipulation device in mine, is going to be played by James Cromwell. Um, and my Dr. Paradigm, the uh, evil kind of scientist in this, is going to be played by Jeff Bridges. So there's my cast. Uh, so like I said, this is going to be a little, it's going to play into the cheese of what you want with human half sharks. Um, and it's going to just kind of be a really fun um, action movie. It's not, not going to be too brutal. Um, it is a, it's a PG-13 fun action comedy, basically. Um, so in the beginning of my movie, Dr. Paradigm and his goons steal the mani- manipulation device created by Dr. Robert Bolton that turns his sons into the street sharks, human shark hybrids that fight crime. The first part of the movie after the heist of the machine is the street sharks trying to make their way to Dr. Paradigm's hideout going through goons, kind of like the show. When they reach Paradigm's lab, they see plans and a glowing machine. And this is where my rule comes in. Dr. Baron Paradigm has gone back in time. Big, Big Slam bowls his way into the machine, forcing his brothers to, to really follow. When they open their eyes, they realize they are back in time to the age of dinosaurs. Dr. Paradigm is planning to make dinosaur-human hybrids to combat the street sharks. They fight off and survive the dinosaur attacks, as well as the goons, before finally finding Do- Dr. Paradigm and forcing them to bring him back to the present. Paradigm is arrested for the theft of the machine, and then there's a post-credit scene that shows Paradigm's empty lab. The caps- capsules slowly open, revealing dinosaur the dinosaur-human hybrids were created. It's unclear whether they're good or evil, but this sets up a universe that uh, another show in the same universe versus Sharks called Extreme Dream Dinosaurs. Nice. I like that you both used some very iconic and stylish directors for your movies and really leaned into their, their styles on this. Uh, I do have a question, though. I, I'm not a huge fan of the original show. I've seen almost none of it, but I played with the characters, the uh, toys all the time of the characters. And one of my favorites was the villain toy. Uh, his name is Ricky the Rowdy. Uh, the movie showed his origin story of him being scientifically combined with a dolphin to become a rowdy dolphin. Uh, you guys didn't have Rowdy in your pitch, but d- do you reference him at all, or do you have? I know Joe had like the origin of the character is really playing indirectly to his pitch. So I'll start with him. What did you do with Rowdy, Joe? Uh, actually, Paradigm creates Rowdy as an attempt to like take out the Street Sharks. So like the Street Sharks go after Paradigm, and Paradigm's like Paradigm can't fight them alone, so he creates Rowdy to go after the Street Sharks. Interesting, Bobby. You have anything with Rowdy in your movie? Um, he's like his main henchman in it. So like when I say, cause I, I basically just mentioned they, they, there's a lot of goons and people for him to, for the street sharks to fight. And he's one of them. He's like the lead henchman in a bond movie kind of deal. So he's there. 
All right. Uh, uh, you got any questions for him, Johnny? Yeah, well, I liked Bobby's use of dinosaurs because of the uh, famous uh, Street Sharks Dino Avengers um, special that uh, was on TV and that the movie itself wanted to set up that universe. So I'm glad Bobby kind of cut back into the uh, Dino Avengers uh, well um, as far as that went. But my question is, now James Cameron is quoted saying Avatar would not have been possible without the achievement in CGI technology that Street Sharks accomplished. Um, will Cameron be a producer on your movie since he has expressed interest in the franchise? Uh, no, he's been a producer on like the last four Terminator movies that have been bad, and he was a producer on Elite Battle Angel, which was bad. So I don't want him near my movie because he has not been a good producer recently. So stay away from my movie, Mr. Cameron. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't think he would have been involved with this one because he, if he was, he would have tried to push some crazy technological advance that didn't need to happen for something like Street Sharks. So. Um, no, I think he's going to stay away. All right. Before we get into the arguments, I want a couple of quick little comments here. I have some good ones from the classic Cole. He's always in these comments. He has something nice to say about me, so I made sure to bring it up first. <laughs> he said, looking good, Tristan. Big fan of the sweater. Me too. Repping Star Wars, repping Christmas all at once, you know. Still trying to override the Skywalker, but Mandalorian is, is pretty good, so it's helping. He also appreciates Joe's festive attire. No comments on Johnny. He was not in character this week. Apparently not. Uh, he's peeping Bobby's slightly more decorated background. <laughs> <as well. laughs> slightly. Very slightly. Very, very slightly. Here, the comments moved. I have Superman over that way, but, you know, it's what no, I can do in here. After the comments fight it out, I'll be right back. I got to grab my festive attire. All right. Even though Cole is shit on it anyway. Yeah, What's more effective than Lamar Jackson, you know? <laughs> yeah. So are we fighting it out, Tristan? Yeah, I'm ready to go. Yeah, I like your guys' director choices, so I want to hear that a little bit. And I'm leaning I'm leaning one way pretty significantly, but I don't want to play my hand too much. I want to hear you guys fight it out here. All right, yeah. so my, my, my boss, yeah, my thing against Bobby, so number one is director is Sam Raimi, and then he has Vin Diesel, James Cromwell, and uh, Jason Siegel. I feel like his movie might as well have been the 2005 version. Like, I don't know if... I want to see like a movie with bloated ass Vin Diesel trying to be a shark. Like it's not what I'm going to the movie theaters to see. He's essentially a voice. I mean, they're the CGI sharks, and he's awesome at doing that work. And he's he's the one he's the one to get into my movie. Um, he's the guy that takes it super seriously. He's almost as you know as Fast and Furious Dom character, and everyone else around him is not taking it nearly as seriously. And that's where a lot of the comedy elements come in, as the character interactions of him going into these deep monologues and plans and stuff and then like you know slamu just pulled his way into guys and stuff like that and that's what i want to see vin diesel do is give big speeches like that's not what vin diesel is for vin diesel Joe, you like, literally love the best and furious yeah but franchise. like ironically i'm not out like, here being like, like oh you know this movie would be better and also your movie has dinosaur human hybrids which is also what they have in super mario brothers and that movie's fucking terrible like it's iconically one of the worst movies of all time in like a movie that's bad for so many reasons. One of them being that the dinosaur hybrids were supposed to be like Yoshi or the Goombas, which is nothing like what I'm doing. Yeah. Like I just don't like everything about your movie felt like it should have came out in 1997. Like, and you know what? That's not a bad thing for street sharks. This is a, it's a campy show. And I it think it's going to be a really time fun because movie. They tried to redo what they did in the animated show. That's why. No. It well, I mean, look nowadays, 
this type of movie like like it's like a guardians of the galaxy galaxy james gunn did just like you just like you make anything with a premise that's bizarre and as long as it looks interesting and is somewhat superhero related which the street sharks are oh so you're saying a street shark movie with james gunn would be interesting that's literally what you but, just said oh, no, but you, what i was going to get at is your tone you're going r-rated james gunn back in the day for street sharks that's not the I don't think that's the right way to go. This is a cuz it, it doesn't sound nearly as fun. It's maybe it's for horror fans or for something like that. And you have some I like some of your cast. I like Nathan Fillion and all that. So, but the thing is Reach Sharks, if you're if you're going to go horror or if you're going to go um, R-rated, go all the way, way like the street charts, like this body, complete body horror, horror movie. Um and I don't think you went fully that way and it didn't sound what do we have here? We have more comments on the stream, but, but I, I don't think you Bring went fully enough and tried to keep it like, oh, it's body horror and fun, but then it's also got this comedy. Um, I don't think it fits the tone of the show enough. Um, I don't think you tied into the show because it failed because that's what they did originally. Um, what do you mean I don't tie into the show enough? I basically take the plot of the original and expand it, or the pilot, the plot of the pilot of the show and expand it out but change up the tone to make it a little bit more interesting and a little bit more adult because adults are the only people that care about street sharks. I've, one of the reasons I went for the more hard R body horror route as I feel like live action street sharks, it would just be like in the style of the original show would be too campy and too weird and not. So like what Sam Raimi does very well, well it would be in a way weird. And that's what this would be really fun, entertaining with fun characters. And like I said, like the the character interactions between them, I think I got a really good cast of guys that could um, pull off some, some just like like I was saying, saying examples of Vin Diesel getting the speeches, slamming running, and you have Joe Manganiello, a really good actor, and also just like someone who can pull off any action if he's the CGI guy. Being the um, cool ladies man, I think that's great. Jason Siegel is one of my favorite comedic actors and he hasn't done any you know he hasn't been in, in a lot of movies lately i want to get him in there i think he plays a great lazy street shark um and i just i love my cast i love the going back yeah. in time because you get the dinosaur sam raimi getting a little bit of his horror elements in there with the street sharks fighting dinosaurs i mean i think that's a lot of fun and camp that you need for a human shark hybrid movie I, and i like camp is fine but i feel like if you go for like the two like camp that's more the style of the original show it just doesn't work in live action and so that's why i tried to change the tone i just don't think it works in live action in a way that's not just bad and i think taking it too seriously where it's a body horror movie is it, it doesn't come off right i mean they are they're goofy they're human shark hybrids you can make them look cool enough but at the end of the day it's like trying to change the ninja turtles and making them gritty like they did for the michael bay produced movies and it i don't is- think that works I mean, you could, there's gritty, and then there's, like, if you made a serious Ninja Turtles movie and, like, kept it in more, like, a daredevil tone, I think it could work. But the problem is when you do, like, action Michael Bay type of movie, I don't think it works. Where if you did, like, a raid type of movie with the Ninja Turtles, I think that could potentially work. It's just when you go, like, full Michael Bay, it's just not. That was, like, the biggest criticism when they showed the look of those turtles um, and not to get too big of an argument about Ninja Turtles, but I think yours falls too much into that camp where you are. Thank you, Tristan. You are. <laughs> uh, that's very uh, related to our shirts today, too. But um, I just think yours goes too much down the route of line. being. You know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, to to rug, rugs. Um, or no, Hollywood Brown. Brown. What wrong guy? No, no, wrong. All right. Stand target. 
But no, I, I think that yours just goes takes street sharks too seriously. You to make them body horror takes away the fun of human shark human shark hybrids in an action movie. I think you want fun characters. I think you want fun action. Um, time travel. It's it's crazy. It's fun. It's weird. They got mad scientists. I I, I think I just like mine. It's a lot more fun. Yeah, I think I've I've heard it a lot on this. Do you have any last comments, Joe, to respond to Bobby there? Yeah, what I've said before, if I don't know if a live action comedy Street Sharks would work. Yeah, um, uh, Tristan, I'll let you decide on this one. But my thing with it is, I'm interested to see what Tristan's opinion of the of uh, of Joe's pitches, because he mentioned this isn't really for the original fans of the show. I'm a big original. I'm a big fan of the show, and I had all the toys growing up. Um, and and Joe's movie doesn't sound like Street Sharks at all to me. Um, Bobby, I think I don't know if Vin Diesel is in on the joke of Vin Diesel as much as you kind of say he's going to be in this movie. I don't think he would really allow as much as like being the kind of like making fun of himself thing. He's not really self-aware, but I think he plays the good straight man for this. He is big in the Fast and Furious movies. Your guys actually look like street sharks. Like I could see the CGI working better on them than Skylar Gacindo, who is supposed to be a ladies man in Joe's movie. I'd rather see Joe Mangianello in that role. I think that works a lot better. I'm a sucker for anything Dave Bautista. He's perfect. Um, I would have liked maybe John Cena or The Rock in these roles. I think that those would have fit better in your cast than even probably Vin Diesel or Jason Segel. But I think Bobby's cast is a lot stronger. He sticks with the right tone. I like his tie-in for the Dino Avengers because the show and the original movie had those tie-ins. And Joe's movie um, sounds more like Tusk than Slither. And I don't think it fits into Street Shark at all. So, Tristan, what, what do you got, though? Yeah, I'm definitely leaning in your direction. I think that I like that Joe told the origin story of the Street Sharks so directly. I think that's something that could be interesting because I think in 2020, people don't really know the Street Sharks. So I think giving them that history would be a good addition, especially if you're trying to build like a franchise off of this. But ultimately, like from the pitch, Bobby was saying everything that I didn't know I wanted to hear. Like when he said Sam Raimi, I was like, oh, that's awesome. When he said Vin Diesel, I was like, oh, that's perfect level of cheese. And Vin Diesel was just like revealed to be in Arc 2 a couple of days ago where he literally fights dinosaurs. So when he brought in dinosaurs and Vin Diesel and Sam Raimi, I was like, wow, this is this is perfect cheese. I'm all in on this. And I understand that the original movie tried to be too faithful to the show and too faithful to the tone of the show. But I think in 2020, bringing that show back, bringing that tone back is where you want to go with it. So I'm giving it to Bobby here. He's going up two to nothing in that Put Joe down two to nothing. Uh, gives you the choice to pick the next movie, Joe. Where are we Joe, going? James, James Gunn is literally making the Suicide, Suicide Squad movie with exactly the tone I'd love to see in a Street Sharks movie with a guy who's half man, half shark. And you went the complete opposite direction of what you should have with his tone. I think you could have easily won the pitch if you stuck with the fun James Gunn tone rather than what you did. But I was kind of disappointed when you said James Gunn and then you went towards the slither route. Yeah, I don't know if Street Shocks is the one you go for body horror on, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, So I'm going to go one with a pitch I'm more confident. I got rid of my two worst pitches right off the bat, so I'm feeling pretty good from here on out. Uh, So I'm going to go with Creamed next, and I'm going to go first. All right, Creamed, a very... 
<laughs> underrated movie for what it is. It's 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 problematic. It's a weird title. It's definitely a B movie, but I have some good memories with this one. Dreaming from 1997 has a 33% in Rotten Tomatoes. I said I liked it, but that's pretty accurate. I'm not going to lie. Uh, this raunchy teen stats comedy from the director that Never Been Wet is about two teen girls, Virginia and Alexis, who decide to fake being gay in order to benefit from the gay privilege and become popular. They're loved by everybody, but things become complicated when Virginia falls in love with a gay football player and Alexis really falls for Virginia. All right, Joe, give us your pitch for Creamed. All right, I'll give you my plot first, and then I'll give you my director and cast. So in the not-too-distant future, Amy and Tina are two recently single women in their late 40s, early 50s, who have been best friends since elementary school. Amy is divorced after finding out her husband cheated on her, and Tina became single after her husband died in a car accident. The two both confess after some drinks they have been questioning their sexuality for most of their adult life. However, both feel it is too late for them, the time to figure that out has passed them, and they wish they had experimented more in college. They talk about this with their friend James, played by B.D. Wong. And this is where my rule comes in, because James is a scientist and says he can potentially help them. He works in a lab that is creating an experimental technology that can transport your current mind back in time to your previous body. So that is my rule. I'm making this a time travel movie. Not thinking it will work, the two reluctantly agree and get transported back to their college days in the early 90s. The movie is about self-discovery as they spend a semester kissing girls, kissing guys, going on dates, and figuring out themselves. The two become more popular than they ever were. Problems occur when Tina falls for a closeted boy on the football team and Amy falls for Tina. In the end, the friends realize figuring out who you are is never easy at any age, and as they go back to their middle-aged selves, they agree to continue on their journey of self-discovery. The director for my movie is uh, Charlie Brooker who is like the main guy behind Black Mirror. And I picked him because mainly he's done good, like serious sci-fi movie that have had like touches and elements of comedic moments. Uh, But he's also had two fan favorite episodes that have touched on uh, homosexual relationships. And for my role of Tina, the older Tina, I have Wanda Sykes. And then the younger Tina, I have Kiersey Clemens. And then for Amy, the older Amy is going to be played by Sarah Paulson. And younger Amy is going to be played by Haley Steinfeld. And that's my pitch. All right, good pitch. When you said Charlie Brooker, I was definitely interested. It's a good choice. All right, Bobby, what do you got for Creamed? All right, so my Creamed is definitely not a time travel movie since I just did that. Um, but my uh, director is going to be Olivia Wilde, um, who did Booksmart. Um, my Virginia is going to be played by Joey King. My Alexis is going to be played by Maya Hawk. Um, and my Josh, who is going to be the football player, is going to be played by Dylan Minette. Um, and so here, here is my... Plot. So, so Virginia and Alexis are best friends. They're not quite in the popular crowd, but aspire to be, especially Virginia. With the push for inclusion of the LGBTQ plus community amongst high schoolers, Virginia hatches a plan for them to fake being a gay couple in order to become popular. They quickly become the talk of the school and get brought in by the popular crowd. However, this fake relationship is taking a toll on Alexis, who is closeted and truly does have feelings for Virginia. Alexis is, is loving being, pop, being popular, but she has a crush on Josh, the high school quarterback, and this is a problem with her fake relationship. Alexis is aspiring. Alexis is an aspiring musician, and, and we get scenes of her trying to write a write aside Alexis throughout the movie on her guitar. She's growing frustrated throughout as she can't, can't come up with the right lyrics. Alexis keeps trying to, trying to tell Virginia feels, but can't quite do it. And then midway through the movie, Alexis wins backstage passes to a concert of one of her favorite musicians, Greta James, played by Kieran Knightley from Begin Again. 
Um, during the concert, Alexis tries to go for a kiss with Virginia, but when she backs away, Alexis plays it off as a joke. Backstage in the VIP section after the concert, Alexis starts crying and Greta pulls her aside to ask what's wrong. Alexis explains the situation and Greta gives her advice to follow her own heart. And if Virginia is a true friend, even if she doesn't feel the same way, it won't hurt their friendship. They both feel guilty eventually throughout the movie about lying. Um, and at the end, Virginia confesses what is what they their friends group. Um, Alexis says, well, one of us wants and leans in and kisses Virginia. They have a moment and Virginia asks, is this how you really feel about me? She is not gay, but gives her, gives her a huge hug and says she wants to be friends for life. Um, the credits roll to Alexis's completed, completed song plays on the credits. Interesting. I like the music angle of that one. Yeah. Um, I'll start with my, my question yeah. for you guys on this one. Um, Originally, the gay football player was the kicker of the football team, and that was played by Pauly Shore, and that was known as probably the funniest part of the original movie. Um, does your movie have, like, a ridiculous over-the-top character like Pauly Shore's character, even if it's not the football player? Um, mine doesn't have – not, like, a, to the level of Pauly Shore, but, be like, over-the-top in the same way that there were over-the-top characters in Booksmart, you know, in, on that level. So not, like – ridiculous but there's going to be the crazy teenagers you know within the popular group um players on the team because the cream comes from the fact that is a you know it shows a lot of the football scenes where she's watching it and people get hit very hard so it's like a play off of that um people getting creamed and then uh so um i think it it it's have outrageous moments where references and things like that and like fun characters but not not poly shore okay all right joe yeah, for me, the outrageous character is the uh, school mascot who lives in the dorm across from them, or like across the hall from them, who's like the who actually before uh, Bobby said what he said was actually going to be the uh, main uh, gay kid from Booksmart. Okay, all right, I like that. Tristan, you got a question for him? Yeah, I've got a question. Uh, a few years ago, MTV decided to adapt this movie into like a horror slasher comedy show. Uh, I wanted to see if you guys made any references in your movie to the MTV version of this. Um, no, I think this is more of a, it's a very different take. So it doesn't have any horror elements. Um, so I think they kind of leave that to be its own thing and live as a TV show. And this can kind of do its own uh, coming of age comedy kind of deal. Yeah. So uh, Charlie Brooker, for me, he wanted to kind of avoid the problematicness of the previous versions of this franchise that's why he even changed the name of the two main characters so yeah there's no references really to the mtv version all right we've got, we've got a nice comment coming in right here from cole he says polson is okay as an older amy but a younger amy should be a tommy gun like character <laughs> why do we why do we let cole's comments even get on this he says tommy gun i'm like okay that one has to make it on you know we <laughs> at least watched an episode at least one an episode. I mean, that's going to be my sometimes, big. Sometimes it's, four. Yeah. Sometimes five. Don't, don't worry, Cole. I'm going to hit really hard on that in my my argument that it should have been time again. <laughs> All right. Well, Bobby's volunteering to go first, so let's go ahead, Bobby. Why is your movie better than Joe's? Um, I think the the original the original problematic because because of the plot and it's taken in a very different direction. Like they're kind of you know they're oh I'm I'm using gay to be popular. This one is playing off the fact that. Um, you know, a lot of young kids are very, very liberal and want to be in that popular crowd with that. And that's where the LGBTQ plus community comes in. They're trying to take advantage of that and, and realize how much of a problem that is. 
Um, I think it plays into that social commentary while being a really fun um, coming of age movie like Olivia Wilde did with Booksmart. Um, and I, I think, you know, it's always sweet to have, to have music element in these movies. Um, I think here Knightley plays a good character that give a good, um, speech. Um, this is, um, I, I don't really get for this type of movie why you in, would include time travel, um, cause it sounds relatively serious in tone and it seems like something that should be involved with this was almost a straight up comedy where it's a time travel movie, maybe same same um, story, same uh, kind of, um, they, they learn the same thing, but more of a comedy. Yours sounds a little bit too serious for me for that type of um, tone you're getting and the story you're telling. Uh, and I just think it over, over comedies things for this type of movie. Yeah, for me, I wanted to go more with a serious tone because it was more like the message I wanted to tell, like, hey, whatever problems you're going through, whether you're like, questioning your sexuality or you're trying to figure out who you are, like, it's never too late to figure out who you are. And I feel like there are, there can be comedic elements and comedic moments. There are comedic elements in uh, Black Mirror. And so it's not a completely straight up, uh, like, serious, you know, drama. That's, But it's also... But I just figured Charlie Brooker can take something like time travel and to see how he uses technology and do it in a way that's serious and do it in a way that's believable and makes sense for the movie. And I feel just like the, re the reason to include time travel is to tell the message I wanted to tell of you can, of them being 50, but still going back to their younger selves. They are still able to realize that they can, that it wasn't too late, that they could have you know, gone through all the same things they went through at 50 that they went back to like 20 to do. Yeah, but I'm thinking of the audience of what this type of movie would be for, um, because I don't think a lot of teenagers and high schoolers would be very interested um, in a very serious take on someone older going back in time that, that kind of way. I, I think it'd be much more at, at watch my movie, um, which gives a similar kind of um, uh, lesson to them of that you should be yourself and come out and it may not be as taken the way that you think it will. Um, and I think they'd be, they'd get that lesson and it's more for the audience that this story is for um, yours. You know, if, it, if done really well, if yours, if yours was executed perfectly, it might be for the movie critics, the cinephiles who don't necessarily, a lot of them need to hear this lesson at their age. And I think this lesson is much more, be much better told to some of us in high school, even in middle school, who watches these crazy comedies. Like I watched, you know, um, movie, movies like Bad when I was younger and all, and all that. Um, some, some younger watching this movie who thinks it's more fun and they get this story and be like, oh, I, I can be myself. Um, I just think that's a lot more important, uh, even for a comedy. You know, I, I think comedies can be important and tell really good stories. But like, I understand that aspect and there are younger people who have, like things with questioning their sexuality and all that. But there are also adults and parents who maybe have kids who will grow up to question their sexuality and maybe seeing a movie like this and seeing a movie aimed at them that they can watch and maybe understand the LGBTQ community more can then turn and help those kids. Like, like how many times have they done reboots and copies of 17 again, which is about an older person going back to their high school days and like, going to class with their kids and stuff and those were all marketed to kids those movies weren't really marketed towards adults so you can have movies where adults go to high school or go to college that can still interest kids yeah i i really it's just i feel like the movie i'm pitching is 
is is more for the audience. Like I said, you're like you said, you have you. It's very similar to movies like Seventeen again, where people go back in time because that's the Zac Efron one, I think. Or no, that's that's uh, yeah, yeah there's a version. And then there's um, there's Thirteen going on thirty. Um, there's a lot of movies where people go back into their younger bodies like that. So including the time travel isn't like some revolutionary thing. It also doesn't seem to me having a scientist do it. A lot of those movies, it's like, it just happens. They don't really realize why I I don't know if I think you're taking everything too seriously, too literally for this type of movie. I think if they had just woken up and back in it and like, Whoa, and then figuring out it would have been even better than like a scientist friend. And um, I don't think the tone fit fit. um, And I just think I think I'm fun, but you don't have a ton more arguments unless you does. Yeah, yeah, I feel like we're just going back and forth on the same. Yeah, point. yeah. I think um, Tristan, you can make the final decision on this. I think I got my way. I go. Um, I think Bobby hit on a good point. Joe basically said it in his own thing. He said, "There's a bunch of movies made like Seventeen again." Yeah, there's a bunch of movies made like that. So that's not a defense against Joe's movie. That's actually a hindrance because I don't need to see any more movies like that. I'm a big fan of 13 going on 30, but like Bobby said, it's not like they have a scientist friend that makes that happen in that movie. It's way more interesting when they just wake up and they're in that body. I think Joe's is hindered by having a black mirror director. That's never directed a movie before um, ever. I don't think that's a fit. I don't see creamed and think, yeah, this would be a great black mirror episode. I, I don't see the fit whatsoever with Joe's pitch. Um, Maybe Tristan understood it more than I did, but Bobby's at least stays, True to like the old one is not as heartfelt as I as it should be. Bobby's kind of takes that story but makes it heartfelt, adds some good music in it, and, and I like the way Bobby went with it. I think his appeal is more to the audience it's going for, and I don't know what audience Joe was appealing to. So, Tristan, what uh, do you disagree with me, or uh, are you leaning the same way? I'm I'm a little bit more split than you are. I think that I saw more of what Joe was going for. I think. Uh, I've read some interviews with uh, Charlie Brooker when he wrote Black Mirror. He said like, oh, I laughed the whole time when I write this. So he has like this comedic edge to his movie. So I, I think if he brought that into Creamed, it could be something interesting. And I think changing it up a lot is always kind of a, a good move for these kinds of movies. And I think that a little Bobby kind of played a little bit too close to the original for me. I like that he made it more heartfelt. I like that he added the music elements. So I'm kind of split on that. Paul has some thoughts on this too. He's another classic commenter. He says, I like uh, Joe's idea of if I knew then what I know now, sort of like adults like thinking back to their childhood and trying to reclaim their youth a little bit. I, 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 I'm definitely split on this one. I'm, I'm not sure what direction to go on. Uh, you got to make a decision there, Judge. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's a, this, this, the problem of judging sometimes is you're attached to movies and then you get these two very different takes on them and you're not totally sure what direction to go on. But I like Joe's different take. I like Charlie Brooker. His, like you said, the LGBT episodes of Black Mirror are definitely the better ones. So I'm going to go with Joe on this one, but not by a lot. Staying alive, edging out that victory. Interesting. Yeah, pulling off that, that last second win there. That makes yeah. it. Uh, two to one. Bobby's still ahead, but he does get to pick the next movie now. Uh, so where are we going, Bobby? Uh, I'm going to go with The Devil Went Down to Georgia. All right, oh. Devil Went Down to Georgia. Um, and uh, I guess I'll go first on this one. 
All right, Devil Went Down to Georgia, a 2008 movie, a comedy, 54%. Not great, but, you know, middle of the road. Directed by David Slade and starring Josh Gad in a dramatic role. Reeves Young is a serial killer living in Michigan who decides to escape his life of crime by moving down to Georgia to start a new romantic life with his cousin, Karen, and work as his janitor. His killing ways start to come back to hunt him when the detective believes he's finally tracked down the Middleton murderer. Definitely a problematic one here, so I'm very interested to hear what you guys take with this one. So where are we going with it? All right, uh, uh, movie is going to be directed, directed. Well, first off, you'll get it, you'll get it in a cast. So my rule I used is that I have, you have to use the um, nominations from the 88th Academy Awards. My director is going to be Lenny Abrahamson, who did Room. My Matt, or my uh, Reeves Young is going to be played by Matt Damon. Uh, my Karen is going to be played by Brie Larson. Uh, my Mark, or my cop, the main cop is going to be played by Mark Ruffalo, and his partner is going to be played by Alicia Vikander. Um, and a lot of them, like the movie splits back and forth between the cop's perspective and the interview perspective. Um, so Matt Damon's young, known as the Middleton murderer in Michigan, moves down to Georgia after feeling the police might, might finally have a beat on him. His calling card is leaving his victim's bodies in a hotel room that they have booked under their own name. And he fears he, mi- he missed a security camera tying him to the scene, scene of his last crime. He stalks a woman named Karen from Georgia on social media with intention of settling down with her to establish himself as an upstanding citizen quickly. Detective partners played by Mark Ruffalo and Alicia Vikander are hot on Reeves' trail, leading to a cat and mouse game with multiple interviews throughout the movie um, with detectives and Reeves. They go back through the murders, gathering clues from from each one so the audience has the fun of watching the detectives untangle the wit and also seeing the, the crimes and how gruesome Reeves truly is. Uh, because he is very charismatic and very Matt Damon-like throughout the movie, but you get to see what he's actually done in the past. Um, Reeves can't help but and starts killing again in Georgia. The movie ends with a sting operation where Alicia Vikander is set up as one of the victims under prosthetics. Um, a suspicious Reeves changes his pattern, throwing the sting operation off and planning to kill her in his apartment instead of the hotel and dump the body. This leads to a ticking clock of the cops trying to, to save their undercover detective. Cops arrived to blood blood they opened the door, thinking they were they were sweet. But it's slowly revealed, revealed as the cops enter the room, the room that Reeves' blood they found. Alicia Vikander's character was able to fend off Reeves while obtaining enough evidence through her wire to show he was the killer and that she defended herself. All right. I want to bring in a comment really quick from Cole, who says, that was the equivalent of an umpire calling a fall ball to keep the game close. You know what? <laughs> you know what? I agree, but I'll keep I'll, I'll respect <laughs> Tristan's decision. Go watch Creamed and tell me well, that. Well, I, I, I got to agree, though. Paul's comment, though, actually really helped kind of give me a sense of what Joe's movie was more about. I think Joe didn't really say that, but Paul helped his. That's what I was trying to convey, it, and it just yeah. wasn't coming across. I think, the, yeah, the everyone has kind of had the thought of, oh, man, if I knew what I knew now, what would I do in this situation in high school? Not to go back fully to the last, you know, pitch right after Bobby pitched this one. But I, I think Paul's comment actually really helped me kind of see Joe's side of, of his pitch. So, uh, so I think it was actually closer than my original uh, judgment. Call. Yeah. If you guys anyway. want your, your comments to show up live on the show, you can watch it live on YouTube. If you want to join the conversation between Colt and Paul going on right now, but for now, we're not talking about cream. We're talking about devil went down to Georgia and Joe's up for his pitch. So what do you got, Joe? All right, my director is going to be Darren Aronofsky. My Reeves Young is going to be played by Daniel Craig. And my Karen Young is going to be played by Helena Bottom Carter. 
1910, Reeves Young is a farmhand in Russia who suffers from severe aggression, delusions, amnesia, anxiety, and incoherent speech. And this is where my rule comes in because he goes to a hospital in Moscow where medical student Sabina Spilerine, Kira Knightley's real-life character from the movie A Dangerous Method, uh, who talks to him and diagnoses him with schizophrenia and ends up studying him for some time. However, he only gets worse and worse and then ends up escaping the hospital and goes on a murder spree, gaining the name the Moscow Murderer. In a fit of anger, paranoia, and delusion, he nearly kills his wife, Karen. She is terrified of her husband and moves about 1,200 miles south to a small village in the country of Georgia. Reeves Young goes back to Sabina, who treats him and makes him better, although he never reveals to her what he did. Reeves finds his wife, and they refall in love after he gets a job as a janitor where she works. All is well until Sabina, back in Moscow, finds Reeves' journal detailing all of the murders. She has found the infamous Moscow murderer, and it is her friend and patient. It is only a matter of time before his symptoms creep back up and he starts killing again. And she must find him in time to stop the devil who has moved down to Georgia. And that's my pitch. Interesting. Uh, Yeah, you got any questions for him, Johnny? Yeah, my question is... um... In the original, in his um, spare time, Reeves Young plays the fiddle as an homage to the original song, The Devil Went Down to Georgia. Will your movie have any fiddle playing? Uh, so my, in my movie, my main character, he's just like a dumb kind of like farmhand. He's not like an educated person, so he doesn't know how to play the fiddle. But one of the main instruments in the soundtrack is a fiddle. Okay. Yeah. You know, like, actually, my answer, but it, but it's more like you're going to get no uh, uh, like nods to it in the score. Um, and then when he's in the car, like, it'll be on a station as he's flipping through. Like, it's not going to play for an extended period of time to be on the nose, but you'll get the real, little reference. Okay. Just All right. you got I, a question? Yeah, I've got a question. I looked up some trivia about this movie, and I read that Josh Gad was kind of concerned about the problematic elements of his character, you know, all the the incest and the murder and all that kind of stuff. And he wanted to add some sympathy. So he decided to ad lib some movie trivia and quotes during the scenes and the dialogue with his cousin and his relationships in the movie to make himself more relatable. So is your character also obsessed with movie trivia? Uh, no, my char- my movie takes place in 1910, which is basically before movies exist. So uh, no, it doesn't have movie trivia. Um, my, it does, mine's not movie trivia, but you do see him he watches like any movie that involves serial killers. Like anytime you, anytime you, it's like not hit on, but anytime you see the TV, it'll be playing like seven or something in the background. And it's just like a thing of, wow, this guy, that's all this guy is, you know, obsessed with. I like that. All right. That's all the questions I got. So I'm ready to hear you guys argue it out. Let's start with Joe. Why is your movie better than Bobby's? Uh, yeah, I like mine. It's got Darren Aronofsky. Uh, I feel like it's a good mix of his uh, movies done a movie about a guy with like aggression issues in um the wrestler he's done like these weird crazy movies uh with all these weird visuals like requiem for a dream he's done these like dramatic movies like black swan i feel like this is a good combination of these movies where you can get some weird visuals where you see reeves young like the hallucinations in his mental state and i feel like he's the perfect guy to capture what schizophrenia is like and i think you could make him more terrifying and you almost it makes him more interesting because he almost lives in like an alternate reality with his schizophrenia i think it'd be a really interesting take on this movie instead of just another thriller that comes out that we get every year hey, where um, are you, Bobby? Where's your movie better? yeah so 
Uh, I just think one of the one of the more like fun aspects of any movie with a serial killer serial killer is watching the cop's perspective and seeing someone on the outside trying to solve this like the crimes um, and track this guy down. Like to, in like it's like Zodiac, seeing them and them and the fun of trying of trying to out who this guy is. Um, and same with Seven and all that. And I think think that the aspect that yours is just missing. It's really intriguing. I do like the story of yours. But for most of the movie, your character that makes this revelation um, doesn't know that. And it's just, you have the murders, and then it's like building a relationship through most of the movie. And then she finds the, then she finds out, oh, and then has to, and that it's her client. Um, and, I, and I, with anything involving a serial killer, I always love the untangling of the web of what's going on. Um, I like seeing like the crime scenes and what he's actually done and all that. And I think that's what mine mine would go into. I think Room is a very well-directed, contained movie with good character. I think you'd, you'd get kind of a movie with good interactions between the cops. You'd get, um, you'd kind of see the craziness of Matt Damon when he's on his own versus, versus when he is uh, with Karen or with the cops, like kind of the dual split personality kind of deal. And I think that Matt Damon would play that really well. Um, cause you're really going to see his kind of psychosis when he's by himself and little outrages and outbursts and all that, um, versus the very charismatic Matt Damon that you see. And I think that lead, um, when, when you're focusing on Reeves, having that charismatic guy, instead of Daniel Craig, who's real good. Um, like I, I, I don't, I don't know if I want to see him play someone with, um, uh, schizophrenia as much for some reason with me like it, that doesn't fit as well like he's a very good actor but yeah. I feel like his best characters so far like he's a good bond but like his more interesting and like character wise are his like weird over the top characters like in uh, Knives Out and uh, uh, Logan Lucky Logan Lucky where I feel like it, I'd be more interested in see because mine is Yours just sounds like a bunch of thrillers we've seen before of like them investigating this and like Matt Damon, Damon would be an interesting serial killer, but mine's more like a character study of this serial killer and his relationship with his wife and his relationship with his psychiatrist. And you kind of see his devolvement and then you think he gets better and you think, oh, he's finally going to be a good guy, but then you see a psychiatrist that's like, yeah, he's probably not going to stay a good guy forever. Eventually he's going to unwind again and i think that'd be a more interesting story of like the character study of this schizophrenic guy than just another thriller with yeah that. and i mean your sound sounds like you're basically taking taking um black swan on it's like instead of a ballet dancer it's a serial killer as far as the character study and the endosis and and all that um which is you know that's that's that'd be good it's just something that darren aronofsky has done before um so it's not as new um, maybe it, maybe it's a little bit of a different genre, but it's still Aronofsky. Um, and Daniel Craig, like you said, his best roles have been these very over-the-top characters, but someone with schizophrenia in that it's not necessarily that he's going to be doing crazy voices. Like the reason he was very over-the-top in both Knives Out um, and in uh, uh, Logan Lucky is because he does these crazy, weird voices, like Southern accents, um, and he like the dyed blonde, blonde hair. Uh, I, I think that's necessarily the strength of Daniel Craig to be as subtle with yeah. those crazy characters, which is something that you would need with someone that's trying to hide the craziness that he has, basically. Yeah, but I've seen schizophrenia people and they don't hide it. I watched the most recent Halloween movie sitting next to a schizophrenic person. That was an experience. 
but they there is like the weird voices in the stuff that I feel like Daniel Craig is good at, and that's why I picked him to start. As I feel like we've seen him do stuff similarly, but also more in like comedic style roles where I'd like to see him do that in more of a serious movie. And I okay. think he could. Yeah, I just. Yeah, um, I, yeah, I, did you got to hear anything else? I think I've made up my mind. I want to hear uh, your thoughts, Johnny, before I make the final call, though. Okay, my my thoughts on it are this. I, I think uh, it's tough because I kind of like both these pitches, um, but I think I think room is is pretty good until they get out of the room. I think everything after that I don't think is as interesting. And Bobby's would have a lot of the family aspects and the dynamics that I didn't really care about as much in room once they get out and they have the dilemmas with their family. Um, I think Darren Aronofsky is a much better pick to do a, you know, kind of the mind of a serial killer type movie. Joe's feels a lot like um, um, what's, it was like extremely wicked, shockingly evil and vile. The uh, Jeffrey Dahmer movie with Zac Efron which I thought was okay, but if you gave that to a capable director, I thought that movie would have been great, and Joe kind of did that. He gave it to a much stronger director. Bobby's just has too much of a Suburbicon vibe to me, and maybe I'm wrong in that, but him with Matt Damon as a serial killer, I don't think I could take seriously. Matt Damon's a good actor, but that's not the type of role I could ever see him really pulling off well. Um, he's good as Mark Walton in The Martian as kind of the comedic guy. He's good in The Departed as like the rat, but I can't see him as like a scary serial killer. I could definitely see Daniel Craig pulling that off. So I would go with uh, with Joe on this one. Yeah, I'm feeling about the same. I, I do like Bobby's director choice. I'd be interested to see what they're doing next in their career, but I think Darren Aronofsky is a great fit for Joe's movie. I think his just feels a little bit more unique in the setting and in the I'm sure Aaron Askew be able to get the most out of this, out of that premise of this schizophrenic character. And to me, Bobby just kind of feels like a movie that I've seen a lot of times, and I'm sure I would enjoy it. And when I watched on Netflix sometime or whatever, but Joey seems like a movie that I want to go out and see as soon as possible because I'm big fan, big fan of Darren Aronofsky, and I'd like to see what he could do with that premise. So I'm going to go ahead and give that to Joe, which shockingly ties it up. Bobby was on a run, but we're now at two to two. All right, yeah. quick question. Uh, would you guys have liked Viggo Mortensen better in the lead role? Because I almost cast him, yeah. and then I found I out he he played Sigmund Freud in the movie that I pulled Kira Knightley from. So I'm like, I don't know if that would necessarily work. So I didn't. I yeah, I would have knocked you for that because they were in the movie together already. But Viggo Mortensen would be a much more interesting. Yeah, he was my initial yeah. choice until I'm like, crap. He was in the movie I pulled Kira Knightley from. All right, he's actually someone I, I was trying to fit into some of mine. If if anyone hasn't seen Eastern Promises, that movie is yeah. That's why I, what, I was having him play a Russian, so I'm like, oh, yeah. Morton, so perfect. But yeah, all right, cool. All right, all right. well, Bobby, what are we doing next? Um, I think we're gonna go with the biopic talkies. All right, before and, uh, we move on to talkies, I want to let you guys know you can rate and review us on iTunes and follow us on Spotify, all your favorite podcast apps. Give us five stars, even if you hate us. You know, we had to watch all of these movies this week, and some of them are pretty bad. So. Give us that five star as, as a reward for having to watch stuff like War Around Christmas and like talkies coming up next. Not very good. So, you know, give us that five star. And like I said, you can follow us on YouTube if you want to comment live and watch it live. So subscribe there. Click that bell to get notified as soon as we go live every week. And with that, I'm going to go through talkies from 1972. It has a 67% on Rotten Tomatoes. I think that's a little bit too high. I didn't like this movie very much when I watched it. 
this musical biopic tells the story of Adolph Green and Betty Comden, the screenwriters behind Singing in the Rain. It explores the troubled process of writing one of the best movies of all time and the complex professional relationship between Green, Comden, and the lead Gene Kelly. It was criticized for its over-reliance on style and sexually explicit content. All right, Bobby, who's going first on this one? Um, I'll go first. All right, what do you got for us? All right, so my talkies, I'll get right into my rule because this is going to be a Wes Anderson movie. Um, my Adolph Green is going to be played by Jason Schwartzman. My Agatha is going to be played by Sir Ronan. Um, my Arthur Freed is going to be played by Owen Wilson. And then Gene Kelly, who I have in the movie, is going to be play, played by Luke Pins. Um, so Wes Anderson is going to show what the correct style can do to a story about a movie that was this important back in the day. So the movie is shot in black and white during the talking scenes, but bursts into Wes Anderson-style bombast and color during the music. This represents the magical transition to Technicolor that was happening around the time to convey this magic to the audience the way the movie did. So the movie starts, Arthur Freed brings in Buddy Comden and Arthur Green to help write Singing in the Rain based on music written by himself and Nacio Herb Brown. If they declined because their agent agents uh, said under their under their they would have to be the ones that would, that would write to the songs, um, if you want to be incorrect, the writing begins, and they go into full singing and dancing numbers throughout as they write this movie, trying to figure out how to write a story around these great songs. Um, they So that a lot of the movie is focused, it's almost like, um, I would say, uh, Saving Mr. Banks, the scenes where they're coming up with the songs and, and the writing process for, Mr., for Mary Poppins of, of them. And they go into these song and dance numbers from Singing in the Rain um, and show the magic of that movie. Um at the, at the end of the day, they have to convince Gene, Gene Kelly in it after he initially digitally declines. The third act consists of a scene where the two of them have to sneak on set of another movie to sneak with, to, with him. So there's a lot of things of them like um, dressing up as, as people that are working the movie, hiding behind things, trying to get to Gene Kelly. Um, they give him a script and sing the title track and, and where he eventually joins in on the song as well as agreeing to be in the movie. Um, and then the, very, the finale as the credits roll uh, is people in in um, the theaters watching this magical masterpiece uh, play on screen? All right, very interesting. I like the Wes Anderson choice. What do you got for us, Joe? All right, uh, I went a little different direction. So my director plays into my rule because the rule I used was uh, cast a comedic actor in the first dramatic performance. So my director and star playing Adolph Green is going to be Bo Burnham. My Betty Comden is going to be Billy Lord. Uh, and then my Gene Kelly is going to be Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Uh, so my version of Talkies follows the careers of Comden and Green, who go from struggling artists to writing one of the greatest movies of all time. Because uh, I looked into the writing process of Singing in the Rain, and it sounds like, yeah, there were some troubles and adversity, but really no more than any other movie. So I didn't really want to focus on that. I wanted to expand over across the rest of their lives. So the movie opens with their meeting through mutual friends while Green was trying to make it as an actor and Comden was studying drama at NYU. Uh, the movie follows them as their created troupe, which gets them a small role in the movie Greenwich Village, but doesn't get them noticed beyond that. The two end up writing the lyrics and book for Adolf's longtime friend Leonard Bernstein's movie, On the Town, which included decent-sized parts for themselves. Uh, they then write two more musicals, which aren't successful, uh, with their second not even reaching Broadway, uh, feeling down and out, they then moved from New York to California, uh, where they eventually worked for MGM. During their time with MGM, they write the screenplays for three successful movies, including uh, uh, On the Town with Frank Sinatra and Gene Kelly. 
Uh, Comden and Green are then tasked with writing a musical using unused songs in MGM's library, which becomes Singing in the Rain. Uh, most of the songs are from the transition period in Hollywood from silent films to musicals, so that is when they set the movie. Uh, when Gene Kelly finished the film in American in Paris, they send it to him and they work with him on the rewrites. Uh, Gene Kelly stars in the film, and when it releases, it soon becomes a smash hit, cementing Comden and Green's careers in Hollywood, including the two's uh, win of Best Writing Story and Screenplay at the Oscars two years uh, later. And basically, I don't know, with eighth grade, Bo Burnham wanted to tell the story of like, hey, these are like what eighth graders are going through. And this is kind of what in, like a middle schooler's life is like. It kind of wanted to tell a realistic portrayal. And with this, I thought it'd be interesting to tell like what life is like for like a writer in Hollywood by using a real life story. And so that was kind of my idea behind my pitch. And that's what I have. All right. I, I like both those pitches. I'm not going to lie. Uh, you got any questions for him, Johnny? Yeah. Um, this movie presented the idea that Gene Kelly had a sexual relationship with both um, Adolph Green and Betty Comden. Um, will your movie address the rumors that started after the release of the original film? No, uh, no, my, no, not mine. Yeah, because, yeah. Sure. Yeah, we'll really yeah. So mine, um, because Gene oh. Kelly comes in later. Sorry, I did. I couldn't hear. But Gene Kelly comes in later into the movie, and it's like them. The whole thing with him is them trying to get him in. So there's no scene of them like, you know convincing him with a threesome or something crazy like the original might have done you know so i i think it's unnecessary yeah one of the things i also wanted to portray in my movie is the realistic relationship between uh comden and green is like they worked together for 60 years they were both like straight people but man and woman but their relationship was nothing other than two friends uh professionally working together and i wanted to be accurate to that and portray that so they there was no like sexual relationship between them or with them and Gene Kelly. I kind of wanted to show that aspect too of like men and women can work together without it being sexual. Yeah, it was definitely an interesting part of that last movie when it was right before the premiere of Skin in the Rain and they had that threesome between all those characters. And we know that didn't actually happen, but it might have. <laughs> Maybe not at the premiere though. But I do have a question for you guys. Uh, the original director of Talkies made a stylistic choice to shoot all the flashback scenes in the film uh, in silence with no subtitles to reference the silent film era. Do you reference this at all in your movie? Uh, no. <laughs> what about you, Bobby? Uh, so mine, basically, that's the whole thing of the correct style because that stylistic choice leaves people like, why am I watching this silent scene? But with mine where it's showing like this was the magic of movies and what it did at the time for people showing black and white until there was the music until there was the movie. Um, that's kind of the reference to it without doing it in the same way. All right. Good answer from Bobby. Joe gave an answer. Cause my movie is like a straight single narrative with doesn't have flashbacks. So it does, doesn't fit my movie to have like flashbacks. Joe, I missed it. Who was your director? Uh, Bo Burnham. Okay. He's uh, directing in. Star. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. All right, I want to hear from Joe first. Why is your movie better than Bobby's? Yeah, I think my movie's better because it can be a personal story for my director and star who started off by doing small videos on YouTube that he was just sharing with his friends and it got to the point that he won uh, best like first film at the WGA. And I feel like it's something he could connect to these people who started off as like this small troupe in New York to winning an Oscar for best writing. So I think... And I feel like as far as movies and a lot of entertainment go, when the story is more personal to you, it's better. 
Right, yeah, so, so um, I, I think that biopics specifically are the best when they focus on the correct aspect that you're like that the audience is interested in. So with Joe's, he's focusing on these two writers who not pe- people don't really know. And like it leads into like the one movie people know. Mine is the focus is, is the movie. Come see, see this, how this movie got made. And I find that a lot more interesting um, rather than showing this whole story of a normal biopic of you're starting down, you're, you're struggling, and then they make it big. And that like it's a, you follow this typical biopic structures. I think mine's going to be really fun. You get to the music to reintroduce the music of Singing in the Rain back to people nowadays, which I think that would be something that all of a sudden on Spotify or something, all this music is now streaming again, get people more interested. Um, Wes Anderson has enough style and fun to get people into the theaters. Um, and it's just, it was a very magical movie. And I think, I think that focusing on making of the movie instead of the people in this case, I think the correct way to do it, because that, that's what people care about. Yeah, I just don't know. Cause like they just came out with Mank on Netflix. That's partially about the making of Citizen Kane and like no one cares about that movie. I feel like, especially with what I saw, the making of, especially the writing of Singing in the Rain is was not like any more interesting than the writing of any other movie. Like I feel like just covering the struggles of that is just not going to make that compelling of a movie. So what made, what made Singing in the Rain, the writing process really difficult is back then a lot of the time, the ones who wrote the music are the ones that and telling the story. And it was this a big, big thing of like, okay, we we have music and we want someone to write a really good, good story around music that's already produced that's not connected to a story. So they have to place them in the right thing and fit them into the right spot. And as soon as they do, it it flips into that that color to get the scene and fitting into the story they're telling. So that I think would be a really fun aspect to show. And as far as Mank, one of the reasons that it was underwhelming is that they focused too much on the actual person writing it and not necessarily Citizen Kane because it, it it was pitched as this was the making of of a meeting of Citizen Kane. It was really more about the guy that did it. Um, and I thought that a lot of the criticism movie was that focus. Um, I think this is a better way to do it that's a lot more interesting than Mank and a lot more interesting than following a whole people's career just to get up to the movie at the end that made them successful. I mean, still, the the uh, Mank was also just a guy laying in bed for a lot of it. And my movie's still going to be fun because you have Bo Burnham and Billy Lord as your two leads who are fun, interesting, entertaining, younger people. And the writing of Citizen Kane is still a large part of my movie. It's not just like we get to the end, oh, or not Citizen Kane, Singing in the Rain. And it's not like, oh, we get to the end, oh, they also wrote Singing in the Rain. Like the last like third of my movie is about that. And I feel like with yours, if every time they figure out where to place a song, it turns bright and cuts to a flashback. I feel like after like two or three times, it's just going to get repetitive. Like if they did it once, okay, that's fine. But like you do that three, four, five, six times every time with a song, I feel like, okay, we've seen this. Like, Well, you can say that with any musical whenever you get to the songs because it can get repetitive. When you when it's paced correctly and when they're put in the right right scenes, then it's done well. Like it's not like it's not like it's all every single one of them is them. It's in the writing room when this happens. It's gonna happen throughout the days when time someone's on their own, own and comes up when they're out uh, about on the city and they have this dance number with the crowd as it turns into that because you have it's a very outrageous Wes Anderson when it gets to those musical moments and I think that's a lot more fun. Um, I think it's a more interesting story to tell personally than 
I just really just the, the, the biggest criticism I have of, have of yours is that people don't really care about these two writers. It's not going to draw people in. They're just going to want to see the parts where they are writing something in the rain and see like any music that's in it because that's what that movie is almostly famous for. For people that aren't cinephiles, they'll just sing into the rain song, song. They know other things from it. I think this gives people what they want to see and informs them on what is a was a very challenging writing process back in the day and a very uh, magical transition from talkies um, and black and white into Technicolor and sound. Yeah. I also have one last question for Joe, if I want to interrupt really quick. Uh, I, I loved Eighth Grade, one of my favorite movies ever. Uh, and I want to just get a little bit more from you on why you chose Bo Burnham as your director. Why does that... Why does his style add to this movie? I'm not quite sure I see his his directing fitting in this movie. Uh, just because I feel like it's, I mean, we've only seen one movie from him, so we're still not 100% sure like what his full style is. But I just felt like with a personal <clears throat> movie like this, of like or what I said earlier about like a young artist growing in, you know, growing in popularity and growing in skill as something he could connect to. And I feel like his mind is not like a big bombastic, um, musical just because I don't know if that fits exactly the type of story I want to tell and like what I was going to say against Bobby's is I don't know if like a Wes Anderson musical about singing in the rain is what I want to watch I'd rather Wes Anderson do something that fits more his style than a big bombastic musical yeah I was going to say that leads me into my question for Bobby which is Wes Anderson has never expressed interest in showing a biopic or a real true story or anything. And I feel like he's at his most creative when he just has full creative freedom to write whatever he wants. Why did you feel that Wes Anderson was a good fit for your movie? Because I think this is a story that any filmmaker would look at and be like, I at least want to tell this. And Wes Anderson's style, when you apply it to a story like this, would actually make it interesting and make some, something people might actually go out to see rather than just a movie only for the critics um, that it would be if it's just a straight biopic. And I, when you introduce the like Wes Anderson looking at this movie and saying, I can get people to come to see this because I can make it really fun. I, and I think that is interesting. Um, and also because mine is a more like kind of like fantastical musical with the story being told, he gets to express himself and do the creativeness and write things into the story that even if it didn't happen the exact way that it did in real life, it gets the point across. And that's what the whole um that's that bring creativeness into it for me. My thing against that, though, is like you're saying, oh, like Wes Anderson could be like, oh, I can bring people in to see this movie. I feel like the type of people to go see a Wes Anderson movie and the type of people that would want to go see a movie about the making of uh, Singing in the Rain is like almost a perfect circle. Like, I feel like Wes Anderson, like people are fans. Like, I love Wes Anderson movies. I'm going to go see pretty much all of his movies in theaters. But like, he's not like a big, it's not like this, like Christopher Nolan doing a movie about the making of Citizen Singing in the Rain, where it's like, okay, he's going to bring people in because they're like all massive, like just casual fans of Christopher Nolan. But when Wes Anderson matched up with something that appeals, like when you watch a trailer for like the like Grand Budapest Hotel did really well in theaters, especially for that for that movie, um, and that movie, the trailers and everything were a lot more broad, a lot more like that looked a lot more interesting. And I feel like that's the type of thing I'm going for here, where you can show those scenes in the trailers with the music, and people are like, "Oh, that looks really fun and cool," and bring them in. And even if it's someone who doesn't know who Wes Anderson is, 
the style for the, for this type of biopic, I think that to me, it's a perfect match. Like I can see that, I can see that appealing to a wider spectrum of audiences than most Wes Anderson movies when he is in his own thing, the whole thing. All right. I think you guys um, have said everything you need to say about this. We let it go on long because this is a, this is probably a tougher one. Yes, this is really close. So I think Tristan probably agrees. Uh, I'm going to, I'm definitely split. I, I like both director choices, but I feel like they, you guys both did a good job attacking each other's director choices. So I'm, I'm not sure where to go on this. I'm going to have to get Johnny's thoughts first before I make my final call. This one's close um, because I love eighth grade. I thought that was a fantastic directorial debut from Bo Burnham. Um, it showed that he can be a star in Hollywood now. Um, Wes Anderson, I love him too. I was disappointed by Grand Budapest Hotel. I know a lot of people – um, clamored and said that was one of his best works. I I think his best movie of the decade was Moonrise Kingdom. Yep. That was about eight years ago. Um, and since then, he's done Grand Budapest and Isle of Dogs. I just, I think if I'm going to see a biopic like this, while I would much rather see a Wes Anderson film, like if you put, would you rather see Wes Anderson's next film or Bo Burnham's next film? I'm first in line for Wes Anderson's films. I see all of them, but I like Wes Anderson having complete creative control and writing and doing everything from scratch. The Royal Tenenbaums is the greatest movie he's ever done. It's one of my top five favorite movies of all time. That is not a a real story. That's just characters he made. His humor works for made up characters, more fictional, um, fantastical worlds um, like Moonrise Kingdom uh, was I think Bo Burnham, while he obviously has only made one movie, he has the musical background where Wes Anderson has never had any form of musical in his movies. He has had, you know, music is a big part of what he does because of the scores, but at least Bo Burnham, I mean, he is a musical comedian. I think he um, would be a better pick for this movie. While I liked both pitches, it came down to the director choice and I just don't see the fit of Wes Anderson. And I think Bo Burnham would be a better pick. So I would go with Joe on this one. I would love to see Wes Anderson do a musical. I think that would be something that would be really fun for him to do. And even something set in like this era, like a a talkies kind of era where the tradition between the, the silent films and the talkies. So I'm, I'm initially, I was definitely leaning towards Bobby, but I'm, Johnny kind of brought me over to Joe's side when he mentioned that Bo Burnham has that musical background, which is something that I think he could bring into this movie really well. I think if he, he'd be great at being that musical lead, kind of giving that musical performance and bringing in the musical elements to, to that story. So it's very, very close for me, but I'm going to give this one to Joe for that. Nice. Joe's strategy of giving his two worst pitches first has, has worked out for him. Yeah, it's paid off so far. Well, well I didn't pick off. the first time, so. Yeah. And then and I was like, I'm just going to pick the other shitty one point. out of the way so I can just keep on rolling. The one thing I was going to add, too, is the because he brought up uh, uh, the Mary Poppins movie, Saving Mr. Banks, is watching them write the music of like those scenes were like my least favorite scenes of that. Yeah, that was my sucks. favorite, though. No, that's yeah. a good movie. That's I'm a good not movie. a fan. Just kidding. I've never seen that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, that. On that so. 
I no, like I don't know. I, I like, um, and I think I was I was leaning towards Bobby throughout some of the arguments, but Joe was slowly wetting himself back and and Johnny's comment about the musical origins of Bo Burnham, I think, is what pushed me over because I think yeah. that's a great. So I can blame Johnny. That's good. I forgot. I, I think you I can because I think I think at first I was leaning towards Bobby as well, but the more I thought about it, and Tristan, especially asking, why do you think Bo Burnham's a fit, made me think, why is Wes Anderson a fit? He's never done a musical before, and I would love him to do one because I think that could be a very interesting thing. I would rather see a completely fictionalized, complete from scratch, Wes Anderson writes a musical. Um, I don't need to see him do a biopic or anything based on real life. He's never expressed interest in doing something like that. So that was what I would lean towards. Okay. So I'm debating because the two movies that we have left here, I do like both my pitches. But... <laughs> Please don't make this come down Maybe to one of them. Movie, yeah. <laughs> hmm. Our two most problematic right. movies left, maybe, are okay. the last two. Uh, I, I think Creamed was maybe our most problematic. Yeah, <laughs> let's, 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 let's get the most problematic one out there, out of the way. Hope that I win this to tie it up. Um, so let's go with The War on Christmas. You guys can vamp for just a second. You guys, you can say what the movie is, but I'm going to run to the bathroom real quick. Um, uh, I'll let Joe go first because I pitched the last couple first. All right. All right. I'll go through the description really quickly here for the war on Christmas and not so classic Christmas movie. I'm sure we're all going to be watching a lot of Christmas movies in the next few days, but you should probably skip this one. Uh, the war on Christmas from 2006 has a, a whopping 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's in the same league as Emoji Movie, I guess, and I've seen that movie more than a few times in theaters because I hate myself, I guess. But does, does Emoji Movie have zero? It doesn't have a zero. It was zero percent when it came out. I think it got a couple of positive reviews since then. Probably a couple. That's probably mine. So or the 2006 zero percent. I'm gonna get the description really quick. Uh, known for being the first and only made-for-TV movie on Fox News. Tim Allen plays a priest who is the only person left in his subdivision that celebrates Christmas. He kidnaps his African neighbors who celebrate Kwanzaa and his Jewish neighbors and teaches them all the value of Christmas. So you can tell just from that premise, this is definitely not a great movie. <laughs> and, and less and less great as time has gone on, I think. Have you guys seen War on Christmas? Uh, no. Um, no, this was one, even as judges, I couldn't stomach to put myself through so i did not i did not put myself through this one but you know tim allen he loves his uh his christmas movies and uh he made this one which was uh problematic to say the least yeah yeah i made an attempt to get through this one but i got about halfway through and i realized i could be doing so much more with my time than watching this made for tv fox news movie with tim allen so i went ahead and moved on I actually swapped from that to how to get away with it. So we're going to go from a movie I stopped watching to a movie I actually watched. Bobby, have you seen uh, The War Around Christmas? No, I did not want to put myself through it. But I watched the trailer. I read about it. Um, I watched like the opening scene, and that was enough for me. But I, I got enough of the premise to get this down. If you go to Fox News' website, you can watch it for free on there. So go ahead and check that out. I think if you just go to foxnews.com slash Christmas, you'll get to it. Yeah, you'll probably do that. Maybe don't do that, but yeah, you yeah, this, this this one um is in some uh great uh 
the league of uh, the ridiculous six and let's see what else. Um, a different version, killing me softly <laughs> from 2002 and uh, the nutcracker in 3d. Those are 0% movies on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. I didn't All even right. know any of those existed. Except for ridiculous. I barely, I barely knew this movie existed. <laughs> I actually watched this movie last night all the way through. I just put it on mute as soon as the credit, the opening credit started. So I kind of got a tone and feel for it. But what do you think? I could see Joe. I could see Joe liking yeah. this one. The opening credits are actually kind of interesting. There's a good song choice. They have some, some like sort of like the opening credits. Elf, you know, they go through like a Christmas. Oh, story. We'll, we'll we'll get into the musical aspects of this movie. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah, that's definitely the music is something that's the only probably enjoyable part of mm-hmm. the first half of this movie that I watched. All right. I think you've waited long enough. Who's going first again? Am I going first? Uh, Joe's going first. Go ahead, Joe. What are you trying to do with War on Christmas? Good luck with this one. All right. So I'll start with my uh, director choice. So my directors are uh, Matt Bettinelli Olpen and Tyler Gillett who directed the uh, recent horror movie, Ready or Not, and that's the rule I'm using as I'm making this a horror movie. Uh, So, for my plot, a crazy deranged mall Santa named Nick, played by John Malkovich, is shocked at how many people don't celebrate Christmas. Every year he sees less and less houses decorated. People are saying happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. This year, hardly any kids were lined up to sit on his lap. Well, he is over it and wants to spread the Christmas spirit. On the night of Christmas Eve, he kidnaps three sets of neighbors, a couple from Africa who celebrate Kwanzaa, played by Jaiman Hansu and Denai Guerrera, a couple that that just finished celebrating Hanukkah, played by Jason Schwartzman and Allison Brie, and then a gay atheist couple who don't celebrate any holidays, played by Wilson Cruz and uh, Zachary Quinto. Uh, The three couples must work together and escape as Nick forces them to participate in classic Christmas rituals like decorating the tree, singing Christmas carols, and unwrapping presents. Anytime Nick feels anyone is a lost cause and will never get the Christmas spirit, he brutally murders them with some form of Christmas object, like strangling them with tinsel, repeatedly stabbing them with a sharpened candy cane, or putting them in a Santa suit and forcing them in a lit fireplace. And that's my pitch. All right. I like the, I like the choice to make this a horror movie. It's, it's already pretty horrifying. So I want to see what Bobby did with this one. Where are you going, Bobby? Yeah, I think that was the pretty obvious rule, um, and I went the same way. Um, I went a little different. I, I, I'm, I'm curious how, how the judges uh, like this, because I played into a movie that I really like. But um, So my director is going to be uh, Nia DaCosta, who is doing the Candyman reboot, which looks fantastic. She's doing Captain Marvel 2, and she did... Um, Oh, I'm I made on her first movie that was really good that I watched. Um, but she she's she's a very good director. Uh, she's more up and up and coming. But my 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 William is going to be my lead, who is a military man turned priest. Um, is going to be played by Michael Shannon. Uh, I have um, the African neighbor Amari, played by Jaimon Hansu. Um, his daughter, so it's a father daughter of this, is going to be played by Lashana Lynch, for, uh, who is Monica Rambeau uh, in Captain Marvel. Um, and she plays Delia, uh, her, her, his adult daughter. Um, my David is going to be a, the husband of a Jewish couple played by Logan Lerman. Um, and then his wife, wife and wife is going to be played by being by Beanie Steen from Booksmart, Smart, uh, Lady Berg. Um, and her, her name is Lisa. Uh, and then I have a, another, um, only one of the two gay, gay, uh, couple is kidnapped and it's going to be played by Neil Patrick Harris. 
So he only gets one of the two of them. So he's split from his partner. Um, so this is a horror movie and obviously comments on like the dangers of the far right. Um, William is a religious ex-military man who is tired of politics around the holidays. He thinks anyone who does not celebrate Christmas should be condemned to hell. He already has Jewish neighbors, but when, when, and, a gay, and gay neighbors, but when Amari and his family move next door, he snaps. Kidnaps maps the group with the idea of showing them the boy of Christmas, but when they fight back, it becomes a trapped in the house movie and a, basically a haunted kind of, or, or like a thrilling trapped in the house movie with him with a Christmas aesthetic, Christmas decorations, um, creepy Christmas music playing type stuff. Uh, so you got a Christmas horror movie with him and William is torturing them the whole time because his idea is not to kill them right away, um, but to kind of torture them. And if any of them um, say that they're going to start celebrating Christmas instead, then he will let them go. Um, he, he has military locks on all the doors, he bulletproof glass, and everything's locked from the outside, side, though they can't escape. Uh, it's a tense, creepy movie with a Christmas-themed house. At the end, they're able to, like the, the surviving members, which I think is going, I'm going to have... Um, Lashana Lynch's character, Delia, um, and Logan Lerman's character, David, be the surviving members, um, are able to um, trap him in Christmas lights uh, and steal his weapon and call the cops. But you get some fun murders. You get some like creepiness and craziness of um, someone who's this kind of psychotic but has a military, very um, uh, military back back or he can be uh, uh, kind of in the shadows and stuff. And Michael Shannon just plays a great villain. All right. I like that you guys both went for the horror movies on there. Uh, Joe, who is your director again? Uh, the people that did uh, Ready or Not. Ready or Not. Okay, right, right. I'm not repeating those names because they're hard to say. <laughs> I didn't remember them. All right. Uh, Johnny, got any thoughts on these pitches? Any questions? My, my big question, we, we brought up the music. On, obviously, Tristan is a big um, Kid Rock fan. Everybody knows that. But famously... Kid Rock did the entire soundtrack to this movie. Um, and shortly afterwards, uh, released a Christmas album, Kid Rock Saves Christmas. Uh, will any singers be making music for your film? Will you have anyone brought in to do, like, since both years are horror movies, maybe, like, creepy versions of, uh, of like, Christmas songs? Uh, yeah, we actually, because, like, Ready or Not is, like, a horror, but it has, like, a little bit of that comedy edge. So I wanted, like, a darker, slowed-down, grittier-sounding Christmas music. I'm taking a big swing here, and we're bringing in DMX to do all of my music. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pull. It's a, it's a choice. Oh! <laughs> okay. Um, all right. I like it, Bobby. You better have a strong answer for that one. <laughs> uh, well, so for my most of the um, uh, most of the soundtrack is done with like kind of the creepy kind of Christmas music, and like slowed down. And then we have a soundtrack. Um, by um why am i blanking on the name that i wrote down but the orchestra the rock orchestra that does Trans-Siberian um, orchestra. yeah, yeah trans-siberian orchestra is gonna be doing like the opening um kind of scene and they're doing the closing credits and they're gonna have a full album of like a different take on on their christmas type of stuff so just kind of bring them back in the fold bobby needed a strong answer and that was exactly the band i was looking for to make a creepy Christmassy score. Bobby, that was a great answer. Tristan, you got a question for him? Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I like both of those answers. I think Kid Rock's cover of Do They Know It's Christmas Time for the opening credits is definitely like the most iconic part of this movie. I think if you're going to watch anything, just go on YouTube and type in 
Kid Rock, Do They Know It's Christmas? And you'll probably you'll probably find the opening scene from We're on Christmas in there. Tristan, yeah, Tristan, I, I, that's, what, that's what all guys, I want. I turned it off. We before before this started, we made Tristan take down his Kid Rock poster. That's that big gap I had right there. It was right there on the yeah. wall. Yeah. So yeah, we all know who the biggest Kid Rock fan was when they were younger. So you know, I'll, <laughs> I'll leave it at that. I'm not going to mention names, but this guy. <laughs> I've seen Kid Rock live. I'm not going to lie. He didn't perform any of these songs. <laughs> he should have. It would have been nice to see. It would have been a better concert, right? Yeah, it would have been better. Yeah, it would have been pretty good. I do have a question though. Uh, The original film had Rupert Murdoch, the owner of Fox News, cameo as Jesus. Uh, He arrives at the end to prove to the neighbors that Jesus is real and that they're all wrong about Christmas. So, do you have any cameos, or do you have Jesus show up at the end of your movie? Oh, I don't have Jesus in my movie, but how the surviving people take out Nick in my movie is they crucify him to the cross in his house. Um, no, mine, the only kind of religious aspect of in that, like as far as references to, to Jesus, is that you have Je- Jehovah's Witnesses try to show up while he has everyone kidnapped, um, but they can't quite get in and they just hear the screaming and kind of slowly back away. So it's like a reference to it and you get the, like, you know, the religious just asking a fun little moment. Bobby, if Jehovah's Witnesses heard screaming in a house, do you think they'd back away or knock more? Um, I think if, if, you, if they're young and characters enough and, and they, they just back away and leave because if they hear what's going on in this house, I don't think they want to stick around. That's a good answer, but I also think if they know someone's home, they will not leave. <laughs> I mean, that's true. <laughs> But I think you'll get that they'll knock multiple times and not hear anything knock. And then as soon as they hear, like, maybe, like, a, a weapon go off and scream, they're like, oh, that's me. <laughs> all right, next house. Yeah, there we okay. go. Okay, all right, all right, I like that. All right, that was my question. Uh, any any last thoughts, Johnny? Any more questions for him? I don't think so, guys. This is going to be a close one because I'm mm-hmm. having fun with both these pitches. So this is going to be uh, coming down to the fight. Yeah, go for it. No, yeah, I want to hear. I want to hear Bobby first. Bobby, why is yeah. your movie better than Joe's? I think one. Um, I have a much. I think I have a much creepier uh, villain in Michael Shannon. I think he does it really well. And I virus think, the virus. Yeah, but he can be very goofy, <laughs> and I don't know if that's the tone. I, I didn't quite get because you said yours had like your directors have some comedy. Um, mine is more straight up horror with like the moments of comedy that you get in like a typical horror horror movie. Jehovah's Witnesses is type off. Um, but it's relatively serious because you have these people trapped in the house and like it's tension filled. Uh, you have Michael Shannon in, in the shadows. He has a great face for something that can be shown in the shadows. Um, very uh, like his cheekbones and all that. It would look really creepy. Just thinking of that shot in the like in the dark um, with like window, like a light from window hitting it. Um, I think that my I have a very diverse cast of people. Um, you can get fun kills. I like it being very contained more than um maybe the original movie starting out and like Joe's it's like starts out a little bit more of a backstory and mine gets kind of, kind of to it. Um, and yeah, I just think with, with a Terry type guy, you got, got a little more of a threat rather than just the, the straight up re-steal in the original. Um, and yeah, like I, I just think mine, a haunted house type trap in the house with Christmas, you can turn Christmas real creepy, real fast. And that's what I want to do with my movie. And I think that would be a lot of fun. Joe, yeah. why is he better? Yeah, he keeps talking about creep factor. Like, Michael Shannon's a good villain, but if you want creepy, I'm going to take John Malkovich over Michael Shannon any day of the week. And I feel like with mine, 
with mine, uh, like there is like a little bit more of that fun element with, you know, because I try to include like more Christmas elements in uh, my movies of like them getting strangled with tinsel and stabbed with a candy cane and getting thrown into the lit fireplace. And I feel like I tried to fit as much of the Christmas element as I could. And uh, I wanted more of those brutal kills. All right, uh, Bobby, go for it. Yeah. Um, I just, one, I completely disagree with you on John Malkovich. I like John Malkovich, but he can come off really goofy and corny as a villain a lot of the times. And I think that works in a lot of movies, but for yours, it doesn't sound like it it fits as well. Um, and I think my mind, you're in, there are more. There, there are a lot. Are a lot of elements, and you're trying to fit as many Christmas elements in it as possible. But his whole house is like in it, entirely decorated in Christmas stuff, and it can turn creepy when you have like elf, like you know, elf dolls and things, and like the the lights that can create a very ominous a look because you have the multicolor type of stuff. You have um, a lot of like he has a um, a lot of the. Uh, what's it called? Like stuff, like fake snow type stuff throughout the house, which creates a really creepy vibe. Um, I, and, and, and score being and tra- transcend orchestra type stuff. stuff I just gives off a better tone, tone, a lot more simplified, a lot scarier. Cause I think with the, the premise that we're going for, it works better personally as a straight up horror movie than it does a horror comedy or with more comedy. Um, because it's horrific what these people think and what they it's like oh if someone doesn't think the way that i do then i can do this to someone um and with someone with the means to do it who's ex-military i think that creates a better movie for me but i also think if you make it serious and you make it more genuine you're almost giving credence to the people that think that way where if you make it a comedy well not a full comedy but if you make it a horror comedy and you're laughing at them more than anything it's kind of like takes away their power where if you make it a more serious movie and you're like, Oh, this is like genuine. It kind of gives, I feel like it to a certain extent, it gives validation to their thoughts where if it's like, you're making fun of them and you're like this deranged John Malkovich character is the person that represents you. Then I think you're almost, it almost works better. I think comedy actually gives a little bit more validation where you, (laughs) where you have like a fun, like a fun take on this and it, it almost takes it like you don't take John Malkovich as seriously. So yeah, like, okay, you can, you can make people, but you, you take, like, it needs to be a serious thing that these guys, anyone that thinks this way that can, um, especially ones that do go into violence because of it. It's like, no, we cannot condone this at all. Look at what he's doing to these people look how creepy and terrifying this guy is because of the thoughts he has. I think that gives off a better message of tearing that side down rather than a more comedic take that you get from John Malkovich. Um, Cause you, there are a lot of movies. So, cause Hollywood typically, I mean, to Hollywood, Hollywood is typically very liberal. So whenever you have a portrayal of a Republican or a right, a right character, they are very goofy and over the top and in their belief that, and it, and it's play, played as comedic to try to make them look dumb. If you have someone that's like, no, this is actually like he's intelligent in what he's doing, but he but his ideals are so wrong that it's dangerous. I think that's a better way to do it than the way that we've done it for years and years and years in Hollywood. I want to hear one last quick thought here from Bobby on his director choice. I definitely see how Joe's fits, but when yours has such a small filmography, I want to hear a little bit because he said you like her as a director. So I want to hear your motivation for choosing her. 
So her original movie, which I could look right now and I forgot to write down, but I watched it. It's very, very character based. And most of this movie is focused on these, these um, four characters interacting uh, and the drama between it. And then my, and also the character work of Michael Shannon being such a creep. Um, and so that's what I wanted. And then just watching the trailers of um, Candyman, I, I've been wanting to see that for so long. It hasn't come out, but it, it looks so creepy. And she's worked under Jordan Peele. Um, yeah, Little Woods is the movie. I uh, just just remembered that or got a, got word from someone. But um, I didn't yeah, want to interrupt. You, yeah, yeah. So I yeah, yeah that's a very, a very, it's a very character based, and that's what you need for a contained movie. Um, and also the creepiness and and work with Jordan Peele, and because of working with Jordan Peele, the um, the uh, commentary on everything going on with um, politics and all that, I think that fits. Right, that's a that's a good answer. You have any final responses to that, Joe? Oh yeah, I mean, I feel like because you already said like my director choice of more of like the horror kind of stuff. It's, I just think with like even more of what he said, where uh, Bobby said like he's gonna make his guy intelligent, and like it's just like what his thoughts are wrong. It still just gives more credence to the people that think that way of like, oh, this guy's smart. Like, oh, I'm gonna do what that guy did. Where if you make him like a John Malkovich psychopath that people are laughing at because it's John Malkovich more, it's gonna make inspire. It's not gonna inspire people to do what that guy did. All right, uh, I, I like both director choices for the movie that you were making. Uh, I think Joe's fits his pretty well, and I am super excited for Candyman. I haven't seen Little Woods, but I just added it to my list of movies to watch because I'll check it out pretty soon. Uh, Johnny, do you have any thoughts before I try and make my final decision here? It's pretty close for me, but I'm definitely leaning one direction. My thoughts come down to the rule choice. And the rule choice was make one a horror movie. Now, Joe made a good horror comedy. Ready or Not is not scary whatsoever. It's a great movie. I, I very much enjoy it. Um, but it's there's nothing scary about that movie. And Joe's movie doesn't sound scary. It sounds very more comedic like Ready or Not was. Ready or Not is more comedy than horror, um, I would say. So that is what Joe is kind of going for. So Bobby sounds more of a horror film. That is what the rule was. It was not make one a horror comedy. It was make one a horror film. And Bobby sounds scarier. Bobby sounds more real. Bobby sounds someone that I'd actually be afraid of. Michael Shannon is terrifying in any role that he wants to be scary in even like eight mile as the abusive, uh, uh, stepdad, he's horrifying in that movie. And I wouldn't want to like mess with him. But Bobby's right. John Malkovich comes off as over the top. I think that works for some movies. Shadow of a vampire is one of my favorite movies of all time, but there's nothing scary about John Malkovich in any movie he's ever done. Cyrus the virus is a good villain, but it's because he's over the top fun. It's not because anyone is afraid of him. Michael Shannon is a terrifying actor when he wants to be, and I'm going with Bobby because his sounds more like a horror movie than Joe's. I I know Bobby's director hasn't had the experience that Joe's have, but if I'm basing it off of Ready or Not or the trailer for Candyman, the trailer for Candyman looks scary. Ready or Not has no horror elements in it. It's just a comedy um, based around horror because of this setup it does, but it's a comedy movie. It's very funny. So I'm going with Bobby. Yeah, I'm leading the same direction. I think that I like Joe's director choice for the movie he's making. I just don't necessarily think that tone is the right choice. 
I think we've had more than enough movies where people on the right are turned into like ridiculous campy characters that we don't take seriously. And I think it's about time that we take it seriously. Like you've seen the last few years that the far right's not just like some joke that we laugh at. It's something that can actually be a real thing. And I think that Bobby's movie has the opportunity to still have fun with the horror elements. Like horror movies are, are kind of are fun to watch, but I think he's, his just feels more modern. Joey's feels like one that would have come out in 2006 and not 2020. Uh, so I'm, even though I haven't seen Candyman, obviously, I think the trailer for Candyman is better than the whole movie of Ready or Not. So I'm going to, I liked Ready or Not, but it wasn't exactly a horror movie. It was a good watch on the airplane though. So, uh, I'm going to go with Bobby on this one and we're going to tie it up three to three going into our last movie. Oh yeah. Now coming down to what Tristan was just saying, I recommend the movie Look Who's Back. It's a German film about. Um, it's kind of a satire, but it's about um, Hitler comes to life in modern times. Uh, his body is like reanimated. There's only one person who knows that it's actually Hitler. And he starts to gain political power because everyone thinks it's just a like an impersonation. So he gets on all these radio shows and starts to gain power because people think it's funny. But then he actually starts delivering his messages and gets his point across it came out before the 2016 election, but it has an extremely terrifying parallels to the rise of Donald Trump in this country. And I highly recommend that movie to anyone. So I agree that with a movie like this, you have to go fully horror movie, show how horrifying some of these people are and not go with the comedic route because that just gives power to the wrong people. So yeah, definitely that's my recommendation up. of the week. I back up your endorsement of Ready or Not. I think it. I think it was on Netflix. Not Ready or Not. That's the other movie. <laughs> Look who's back. That one's on Netflix. It was on Netflix when yeah. I watched it. It was a total Same. blind watch, and it's definitely a timely watch. I think you guys should check it out if it's still on there. It's in my top 100 movies of the decade. It's a very, very fantastic movie. It's based off a famous German book, um, and it's a German film. So if you uh, have taste and can watch subtitle films, I recommend that. All right. Well, we're our last movie here is How to Get Away with It. So, who's going first on this one? Uh, I lost. So I'll go first. All right. Joe's going first on a uh, movie that was not super problematic when it came out, but has become a bit more problematic based on what these actors have have done after this movie. So, How to Get Away with It came out in 1993, and it has a 42% on Rotten Tomatoes. So, not great. But if you're interested in the in the premise, you might want to give it a give it a watch. An action thriller exploring a wanted killer played by Mel Gibson, who is on the run, and he works with a local gang leader played by O.J. Simpson to get away with the murder of his wife, who is played by Renona Ryder, and a nosy neighbor played by Phil Hartman. He does this by using experimental technology created by a med scientist who's played by Matthew Broderick. All right, Joe, you're going first. How are you going to fix how to get away with it? Well, if anyone is uh, following the rules used, uh, my director is Wes Anderson because I'm making this a Wes Anderson movie. Uh, My wanted killer is going to be played by Edward Norton, uh, and I'm changing the gang leader to a mafia boss. So his mafia boss brother is going to be played by Bruce Willis. His wife is going to be played by Gwyneth Paltrow. The nosy neighbor will be Bill Murray, and the mad scientist will be uh, Jeff Goldblum. So it's a typical Wes Anderson-toned movie. Uh, Edward Norton's wife is annoying and sucks, and he throws a book at her. It knocks her back, and she uh, and hits her head, killing her. 
Edward Norton freaks out and checks on her when he sees his nosy neighbor played by Bill Murray looking in through the window. Edward Norton chases him. The two begin running laps outside the house. The nosy neighbor trips on a tree root and falls, breaking his neck. Edward Norton goes to his mafia boss brother to help him get rid of the bodies. They bury the bodies out in the woods, but in case anyone finds the bodies, they feel he will be the only suspect. Uh, Bruce Willis's character takes Edward Norton on a road trip across the country to a mad scientist that he knows. Uh, they meet all kinds of weird and strange people as Edward Norton tries to stay hidden and like keep his identity secret in case the cops follow them. Uh, and he feels he's never getting to truly experience anything. Uh, the mad scientist has an experimental technology that will allow him to hide in plain sight. It's a machine that will change his identity. Edward Norton steps in and smoke billows out, lightning shoots out. Out of the machine steps Edward Norton's character, but now he is played by Owen Wilson. Uh, the movie ends with Owen Wilson feeling free, and that is my pitch. All right, interesting choice on Wes Anderson. That's definitely not what I expected when I was looking at the list of movies, but I, I think you made a good choice with that one. Uh, Bobby, what's your pitch for How to Get Away With It? All right, so my, my How to Get Away With It is directed by someone who has done sci-fi drama, He's done sci-fi um, action horror in a way. Uh, and now I'm going to give him sci-fi crime thriller because my director is going to be Alex Garland, um, who did Ex Machina um, and Annihilation, as well as the show Devs. Um, and also in Devs, he worked with a comedic actor giving a fantastic performance, um, being Nick Offerman in that show. So my Jackson Wells, uh, my lead character, is going to be played by Hannibal Burris. Um, and in his first kind of real dramatic role, uh, my gang leader, who uh, is just kind of known as Snake, is going to be played by Javier Bardem. Uh, my mad scientist, played by Dr. Robert, or is going to be played by John Malkovich, and that's Dr. Robert uh, Sefowitz. Um, his wife is going to be played by Megan Good, uh, and the nosy neighbor is going to be played by Billy Magnuson from Game Night. Uh, but his more, and I'll get into kind of why I picked him. Uh, so Jackson Wells has committed an atrocious crime, killing his wife in a fit of rage after finding out she was cheating, as well as his mother who witnessed the crime. He goes to his only only who think who he thinks can help, a local gang leader known only as Snake. Snake says that he has a perfect that he is a perfect fit for an experiment run by Dr. Robert Sefowitz. He shows him videos of trials where he is able to transfer someone's being into a dead body. He says it costs ten thousand dollars. You got that? Jackson nods. Now you need a dead body. Since Jackson does not wish to kill to kill anyone else, his plan is to break into the morgue um, and steal his neighbor's dead body to use for the experiment. Um, a lot of this movie, it shows like kind of back and forth. He's really not sure about this experiment. He's doing research and watching videos and trying to figure out exactly how it's happening, what's going on. And it brings the sci-fi element of Alex Garland. Garland's, and then, um, then it's a kind of crime thriller of him trying to sneak in and get the body of his neighbor, played by Billy Magnuson, uh, and also, this is a younger kind of athletic type of guy. It's like, this is the type of person that I'd want to transfer my being into. He's also white instead of black, maybe get a little bit more, you know, privilege. He's kind of running through all these ideas. Um, so once he's able, he concocts his plan, you get like the, the not Ocean's Eleven type in the fun way, but you get his plan to sneak in, uh, disguised as a coroner, gets, the, gets to the body, um, and then then the security cameras find him. They see they see him and the cops are on him. It leads to chase scene. Uh, Alex Garland did a really good tension type stuff in, in Annihilation. Um, so that's kind of the escape. From there, he's able to get to the doctors 
um, lab uh, before it starts, Snake shows up and wishes him luck. He's strapped to the table with a machine over his face. The doctor says, um, ready in three, two, one. The laser from the machine starts and gouges out Jackson's eyes, killing him instantly. Snake collects the $10,000, splitting it with a with doctor. And he said, how many more do we need? Next victim. It pans over to a safe, safe uh, or a cold, cold with about, about 25 other dead bodies and cuts to black. You do not know what this, what this experiment really is. Interesting. Uh, all right. I have a few questions. I have one that's specifically for Joe, but I'm going to get to that after I ask my general question for both of you. I'll start with Bobby on this one. Uh, one of the more retroactively memorable scenes of this movie is the car chase scene where Matthew Broderick is driving down the highway and OJ Simpson is in the back with him. Uh, people obviously point to this as, as a reverse reference to OJ's uh, car chase in real life. So is there some way that you reference this car chase scene or in your well, movie? Like, like I said, he escapes from the morgue. Um, and I actually, literally, I can show you it here written down here that he steals the ambulance to leave. Um, and that's kind of the car chase scene until he's able to hide the ambulance, get into another car to get over to the lab. So you have at least a chase scene getting him on the way to the lab at the end of the movie. All right, Joe, what about you? Referencing the car chase scene at all? Yeah, I mean, while they're on the run across the country, uh, while Bruce Willis is driving and Edward Norton's sleeping, Edward Norton's character is sleeping in the back, Bruce Willis is speeding a little bit and the cops start chasing him and he thinks they're chasing him. Uh, because of the murders and not because of the fact that he's speeding. So he drives away and which gets more and more cops chasing them and it becomes a whole thing. But then Bruce Willis, you know, through some convincing and charisma, him and Edward Norton concocted like story that Edward Norton was injured and they were trying to rush him to the hospital. And so. And I have one question for you, Joe. Uh, how does Wes Anderson's tone and style exactly fit with your movie I, I want to hear a little bit more defense of your choice for wes anderson on this movie i mean i mean with the rules i had to put them somewhere and i thought this type of movie could fit more of like his tone and style of the, like, these weird kind of over-the-top characters and these kooky characters with like the mafia boss and like the hand-packed husband and you know the nosy neighbor with bruce or uh, bill murray i think it kind of fits his tone and style and then you have like the road trip of the two brothers, the henpecked husband and the mafia boss brothers going across the country. I feel like that fits his style. All right. Uh, Johnny, you got any questions for him on this one? Yeah, mine's similar because I have one general question that I have a question for Bobby. So I'll start with my general question. Um, in the original movie, Suge Knight helped produce it and he appears uh, in a cameo role as one of the other neighbors. Does your movie have any fun celebrity cameos? Um, it doesn't really fit the tone of my movie. Um, so it's really like, you know, you'll have actors that you'll know that you'll notice to show up as maybe a police officer and like, um, maybe the, the actual coroner, but it's not like it's a celebrity who's not an actor cameo. Okay. Joe. Uh, yeah. Like with Bruce Willis playing the, uh, mafia boss, you have, uh, John Travolta as the, uh, Chili, his, uh, character from, uh, Be Cool cameos in a small role and that's it. It's just a tie. Interesting. All right. All right, then, Bobby, my question for you is, while Tristan questioned Joe's director, I have a question for your director. Alex Garland in his science fiction movies has shown interest in, like, AI and quantum physics. That seems to be his um, area of expertise. He loves that type of science. But 
he's never shown interest in like, I don't know, kind of things that don't actually have scientific background, like reanimation of the dead. What, why is Alex Garland a good fit for, for your movie? Alex Garland went into, into devs. It's kind of the life after death kind of deal. Um, and, and kind of devs just create like a heaven. And it's like, it's like you can do tra- It's basically transfer, transferring your body into an, into a, uh, computerized world so this is taking transferring a body your consciousness from your body to a computerized world into another body but then at the end of the movie like you think that's what they're doing and then you're a little bit unsure he loves to leave these vague endings where you can interpret it so you see a um this freezer full of dead bodies and they're collecting them and all this money but you don't know exactly what it's for are they doing are, are they trying to do this and just don't just don't know do it yet or are there other things? And throughout the movie, you're going to get sneak peeks into the lab, like they're working on this experiment and this is what they're doing. And you, and it's like, it'll give you trails, but it's stuff like, it's a discussion. And that's what Alex Garland loves to do is a discussion at the end of the movie. Okay. All right. Well, I think you two should fight it out. This is an important one. It's three to three. It's going to come all down to the fight because uh, if Tristan's like me, I'm completely split on this one, so it's going to come down to the arguments. So there are um, things I like about each one of them. So I'm really interested to yeah. hear what, what they defend and attack on their movies. It's going to be close to, down to the wire on this one. I thought Bobby was going to run away with it for a second, but we ended up getting to the last last round here. Definitely. So Joe, um, you start. What? Why is your movie better? Yeah, I feel like my movie like fits the Wes Anderson tone more, and I feel like it, it'd be. a a movie that's like Edward Norton and Bruce Willis is like these two polar opposites going across the country while on the road from the cops while uh, and while you know he's facing his crimes but I part of the reason why I cast who I cast like Gwyneth Paltrow as the wife it's like no one likes Gwyneth Paltrow and so you're really not rooting against Edward Norton for killing her and so I kind of like tried to make it so it's not he's not as hateable but he still like was somewhat of a abusive husband at the end when he was just tired of it and threw the book at her. And I just feel like that'd be an interesting dynamic to watch for a movie. And it also fits Wes Anderson style. All right, Bobby, why is your movie better? Yeah. So with, with mine, I just like, it, we're going to get a take of what movie would you rather see? Cause we both, I think picked a, like Joe picked a fun road trip, kind of like Wes Anderson's blues brothers kind of deal, but with a murderer and like, it's like, yeah it's, a, yeah, it's a fun movie with Wes Anderson. It'll be fun. But mine, I think, is going to be more introspective and more the type of movie that made me want to watch it over and over, try to figure out what's going on. Going on. So it leads to a discussion that, like, Johnny and I love to have after Annihilation. And Ex Machina, we're out in the parking lot for half an hour after the movie just talking about maybe what's going on. Um, and that's the type of movie that I want to want this to be where we where um, Alex Garland leans into sci-fi and then hits these other genres like he's done a few different times. I'd like to expand him a little bit. He got a great performance um, in Devs, like I said, out of Nick Offerman. I think he can get a great one out of Hannibal Burris. Um, I think just I think mine is a little little bit more that thoughtful, fun, fun movie. And that's those are the ones that stand out to me and, and rock it up to like my top ten and the top, top tier. Wes Anderson's for movie movies for me are either lower top 10 or they they don't quite hit because his style it's just a west like it's a west anderson style movie that didn't quite hit like johnny said for uh, grand budapest hotel and yours could be either of those but i think mine has the chance to be like the number one movie the movie of the year for a lot of people 
My my problem with yours is because your rule was cast a comedic actor in the first serious role, right? That was the. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my yeah. problem with Burris yeah. is like Hannibal, I like Hannibal Burris, but I feel like he's a good side character because his whole like thing is he he's like monotone and he really doesn't care and he's just kind of dejected. Where I feel like that's kind of like not what I want from the lead of my movie of just kind of like whatever. Like that's Hannibal Burris's persona and it works for him when he's a side character. But even and I and I also don't know if like him as a serious lead and an Alex Garland movie is the best use of him. Like I feel like you easily could have used this rule here, but I don't think Hannibal Burris is the route to go with that rule choice for this movie. I don't know if you can say because you you can pick apart just about any comedic actor as far as what they've done in the, the past. Because usually when you're a comedic actor, you stick to the to the same general role in most in most movies, especially if you're a side character. And I think Hannibal Burris, when I've seen him in movies, I think he has the range to be a character and you have to have some side of you that is a little bit dismissive like that, that he's played to be like, okay, I just killed my wife and this neighbor and not let it ruin you and wreck you completely to be able to parry off this very meticulous plot to get, you know, to get the body out. Like you need some elements of characters he's played in the past. And I think Alex Garland can pull that out of him. Um, So I, I do think, I think he's a pretty like, you remember Hannibal Burris and roles, and I think in memorable performance. But is that also going to make me a rootable villain? And then when he dies by the, you know, the machine at the end, am I almost going to be like happy that that happened instead of like, oh, he got put in this younger body? I mean, that's the whole thing. You are any movie where you're rooting for someone, even in your movie, you're root, you're rooting for someone who killed their wife. Um, so, like in mine, it's like you're not really you're not really rooting for him. You're like trying to see what happens. Like, what is he going to get away with this? Like what's going on? You're kind of happy it happened, but then you're like, what the hell are these scientists doing? They're kind of the scientists doing in mafia or the, the, the maybe that's the, the real big overall, overall villain of this. Um, and you know, a bad guy got what he deserved, but what is coming next? Well, with my movie, you're still able to root for him because, yeah, he threw a book at his wife or like he killed his wife, but it was 100 percent accidental. And then the same with him killing the neighbor. He never even touched the neighbor. The, the, the neighbor saw him kill his wife. And so he chased the neighbor and the neighbor died accidentally, which I feel like fits a Wes Anderson toned movie of like the guy trips on a tree and dies instead of like him, like shooting him or stabbing him or whatever. Yeah. And I to me, that just sounds like an old school, like. I've seen people stumble into things happening all the time. Like, I don't know if that's even revolutionary for West Sandin. Like, ears, I think, would be, it sounds like an okay, like, fun movie. It's a West Anderson movie, so I, I would be inter- I would be interested in going to see it. Um, but to me, anything Alex Garland does is, like, this This could be my favorite of the year. Ex Machina was my, it's like, that it was one of my favorite movies of all time. Annihilation's fantastic. Devs is the greatest show I've watched this year. Um, I'd like to see him get into like a like a thriller kind of crime thing of what he can do and all and also the sci sci fi sci fi. I, I to me it's it's not as much of what you did wrong. It's just that it sounds sounds a bit more bland. bland. To me, Wes Anderson I don't think fits into any of these movies. So we're we're um, we were kind of put it with a tough task with that rule. And I just think my rule choice for this movie works better. Just like your rule choice for talkies might have worked better versus mine of Wes Anderson. Say when it comes to rule choice, I feel like I wrote a movie that you said it could be one of Wes Anderson's best movies in your movie. I just don't know if Hannibal Burris as the lead of a serious Alex Garland movie fits. 
Okay. Yeah, I've kind of defended that, so we, we don't know. Yeah, don't need to go I back just wanted to read yeah, yeah. you go first on this one. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty split. I think both of you guys gave some good arguments. I think I'd be interested to see Wes Anderson take this on because it's different than what he's normally done. He hasn't done something exactly like this before, so it would be interesting to see him do something a little bit different from his normal tone. And I like the road trip angle too. I think I think the the cast you have in that and that would be very interesting to see interact on a road trip movie. So I like that. I also like Alex Garland's choice. I don't know if this is the perfect Alex Garland movie. I think like Johnny said at the start, he likes to ground his in a little bit more realism. So I think if you're pitched with a little bit more grounded in the in the realism, it would have been a runaway. But I'm I'm kind of split on this one a little bit. Uh, and I know that Johnny is a bigger fan of this movie than I am. So I'm going to have to go ahead and give him the final call on this last round. See who wins. It's, it's tied up 3-3. Three to three, So, Johnny, make our last call. Tristan, a lot of help not picking anyone. Um, <laughs> here, here's my thing with it. Um, I love Wes Anderson. I love Alex Garland. Um, but when I really think about the basis of this movie and the title of this movie, it gives me the clear winner of this pitch. Now, Joe, I could definitely see fitting. Like, when he said Wes Anderson, I was like, well, Joe's, like, throwing this away. But his pitch was perfect for a Wes Anderson movie. I think Joe did everything he could have done to make this a strong Wes Anderson movie. I think in um, the best parts of um, the Grand Budapest Hotel was bringing in the uh, Jeff Goldblum character, which reminded me a lot of what Joe's movie was going for. The Accidental Deaths is very Wes Anderson. I agree with that. I don't think Alex Garland is, like, again, the first time Bobby pitched this movie, I didn't think Alex Garland was the best fit. But the more he talked about it, I think um, I think I liked that better. So it came down to a couple things here. My favorite Wes Anderson movie is The Royal Tenenbaums that came out a long time ago. That's a top five movie for me in the 20. 20- 2000 to 2010. That's one of my top five favorite movies. Um, but so is Sunshine, which Alex Garland wrote. Um, in the decade of 2010 to 2019, Ex Machina is my number two favorite movie. Um, and Annihilation is in the top 20. Moonrise Kingdom is great, but it's in maybe my top 50. I think Wes Anderson at his highest is is good, but he hasn't been at that point in a long time. Alex Garland is my favorite working director right behind Bong Joon-ho right now. Um, and the title of the film is How to Get Away With It. Joe's movies are accidental deaths, and it doesn't really get into why that title is important. Bobby's title, to me, works in two ways. How to Get Away With It because he murdered his wife Actually, he didn't just accidentally throw a book at her and she died, but also it gets into the scientists of how are we getting away with what we're doing. Bobby's title works in two different ways. I think it works very well for his movie. Bobby's right. After Annihilation, Bobby and I stood in the parking lot for 30 minutes talking about what that movie meant at the end. My favorite endings are ambiguous endings. I'm going with Bobby here. He gets the win because... 
he had to fight for it, but I thought Alex Garland, after Bobby fought hard for that pick, worked very, very well. I think um, the best Alex Garland movie is a thousand times better than um, what what Wes Anderson has done in almost 20 years. So I'm going with Bobby on this one. Yeah, I'm definitely not going to contest that call. I think both had had directors that I think initially I was off put by, especially Joe, but I think Joe did a great job winning that back. But Bobby ultimately, I think, pulled it off just a little bit at the end. Wow. I think Alex Garland's next movie, I'll be pre-ordering my tickets day one. Like, I can't wait to see what he does next. Annihilation is one of my favorite movies. Ex Machina, one of my favorite movies. Wes Anderson, I enjoy his movies, but I'm not personally the person who rushes out to see Wes Anderson movies day one. And I think that Bobby did a great job of taking this premise and turning it into an Alice Garland movie. So I'm, I'm backing up your choice here. We're going to go with our winner being Bobby. All right. Good work, Bobby. Yeah, yeah. Alex Garland um, is one of my favorite directors working. Wes Anderson, I've never seen Fantastic Mr. Fox or Isle of Dogs. But I'm going to see every single movie Alex Garland ever puts out or writes. So that was a deciding factor. Both of you had to defend your picks. Bobby defended it better to me. So that's what I went with. Very good movie right. to end on. I think you guys both had had good arguments and pitches at this one. It yeah, was- this this was a great one to end on because it was really, really close. Um, we had some really so- good close ones this, this episode. I'm really happy with that. Yeah. Yeah, I thought this was one of the best fought, like, between me and a competitor. Like, it wasn't a blowout towards me. It wasn't a blowout about the other way. Like, I was strong, but like Joe said, he picked, like, two of his weaker pitches, and then it got crazy. So that was, that was, that was fun. All right, Bobby. The, the deciding factor of this one turned out to be what Cole called the foul ball call. <laughs> um, but, yeah. it, I mean, it, not really because Joe got that point and he ended up losing on the final pitch, but I'm glad Joe got that point because – Everything was so hard fought. I'm glad it came, came down to, you know, pitch seven. Like, mm-hmm. if Bobby had gotten that point, it would have been a lot less um, of a dramatic finish. And, and I think uh, coming down to this one would have been uh, – made the made the complete difference to, to uh, the whole show. Yeah, really good episode, really good pitches from both you guys. Uh, Bobby, since you won, do you want to give us some last thoughts, plug anything you want people to watch, and tell us what you're doing for Christmas next week? Awesome. So, yeah, well, I, I just got to start to say my favorite pitch, like, from Joe, for, for sure, was um, was the devil went down to Georgia. Like, even when, like, that whole okay, thing. Can I put how much thought I put into that fucking That was pitch. a great yeah, pitch. If I lost this, I would have fucking just X'd out, and I would say, I don't care anymore. Yeah. I spent, like, a solid day on that, all of the thought. And metic- I read the character description for every character Kieran Knightley has ever played. And then I saw she played a chick in Russia that studied schizophrenics. That was a real. That's person. a great movie, by the way. If you guys have never seen it, I highly and recommend then, it. So, and then I'm like, okay, how can I get her to America? And then I'm like, oh wait, there's a country called Georgia. Where's that? Oh shit, it's literally like 1,200 miles due south of Moscow, touching Russia. I'm gonna change that to the Georgia they go to, not the state of Georgia. And I was like all hyped on that pitch. Dude, that was, I was like inside. I'm like, this is like one of the best pitches I've heard, especially for the movie that it was. So I'm like, I need to battle this. But no, that that was a really, really good pitch. Uh, I'm actually glad you won that point, even though I fought hard for my mind. Um, yeah, I mean, watch, watch the thing again, just because Alex Garland, I say anyone who has not seen Devs, please go watch it um, on Hulu. Uh, it's one of, the, one of the best shows that I've seen in a long, long time. Um, 
not really watching anything new, new currently. So that, but you know, I hope everyone has a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays throughout this time. Uh, gonna see, you know, my, my wife's family and my family, very small gatherings, uh, uh, next week on Christmas. So I'm looking forward to it. Um, I hope you all do too. Um, yeah, I think, I think we're taking a break next week. I think, I think this is going to be our last one for a little bit. All yeah, right. we might get off for a couple of weeks. Um, but yeah, Joe, what was uh, your favorite pitch of Bobby's and, uh, how, how do you, uh, how do you feel competing today? What do you got uh, actually- uh, to plug? I actually think uh, my favorite pitch of Bobby's might have been the uh, how to get away with it. I like the twist ending at the end, and I'm like, oh, that's really good. I don't know how I'm going to fight this. And then I just tried to, like, hammer on Hannibal Burris because that was the main thing I had against his. Uh, but, yeah, this Christmas I'm flying up to Michigan, so I'm going to spend about a week in uh, Michigan for Christmas. And, yeah, that's about it. Cool. All right. Johnny, what was your favorite pitch of each of these people and in- Anything you want to plug? Anything about going on for the holidays this this week and this this month? It's much easier for me to pick who the favorite pitch is when I'm the judge and not competing against the other person, um, <laughs> taking it down the whole time. But yeah, my favorite pitch from Bobby was how to get away with it. Um, because at first I thought maybe Alex Darlin wasn't a great fit, and then he 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 fought hard on that one, and that was a tough decision because Joe also had a very good pitch, um, but. That was a great pitch by Bobby. Like what Bobby said, Devs is one of the best shows I've ever seen. Highly recommend it. Um, and and like uh, I mentioned before, I'm working on my top 100 uh, movies of the decade from 2010 to 2019. I'm going to have that link soon on my Twitter, so follow me on uh, at jduke2393. I'm going to put that on something that I can actually connect a link to. Um, and I have little descriptions written underneath everything. It's, it's work I put into it, but I, uh, I was uh, passionate about doing it. So the other thing was uh, Joe's, my favorite pitch from Joe's was, um, it was what he said. The devil went down to Georgia. What, what a good pitch. I, I really liked the way he, he took that one. Um, I liked changing it up. Uh, he still used Georgia, but in a unique way, he used we kind of put the rule of Keira Knightley to get back at them for making us pick a Halle Berry character, but Joe picked the right Keira Knightley role um, uh, from a very good movie, and it, and, it, and it fit his pitch. So that was another one that I felt um, Joe did did very well on, and and I liked that it came down to the wire after all this because both competitors came uh, came in hot today. So that's what I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say. And, and the other thing I forgot to say when Bobby – I didn't address – the casting of Hannibal Burris, but Hannibal Burris is always so dry and so serious in his interviews. He has a lot of dry humor in his comedy, and I think he could make a very dramatic uh, lead. So, so I liked Bobby's pick on that one. I didn't really touch on that because I talked about the directors, but I think Hannibal Burris was a good choice because I could see him one day doing a good uh, dramatic role, just like uh, I could see with uh, Bo Burnham. I liked the choice for Joe's, uh, talkies with Bo Burnham. I think he, they could both do some serious roles going forward. All right. My favorite pitch from Bobby, I want to give a shout out to his street sharks pitch. I had like very little anticipation for the street sharks movie, but he went and made it something so ridiculous and fun that I would be like there day one to see it. You know, there were so many great elements that this turned that movie into something super ridiculous that I would definitely have a great time watching. So I, I, if there's ever a Street Sharks movie being made, I'm going to be out there campaigning for Bobby to be the one making it because Vin Diesel as a shark, I'm down for that. Fighting 
giant dinosaurs as street sharks, I'm I'm definitely down for that. So street sharks is probably for Bobby. And Joe, I'm gonna echo the sentiment here and say Devil went down to Georgia was a great pitch. I think it's honestly a contention for one of the best pitches we've had on the show so far. I think he did a great job taking that original premise and totally changing it to something that's actually watchable and good because that original movie is not that. And Josh Gad as a dramatic role is kind of a hard thing to take seriously, especially when he's, you know, having sex with his cousin. That makes it a little bit more problematic. <laughs> I think he turned it into a really good pitch, something that was very creative and, I'd, I'd really like to honestly see that movie. So both of you guys had two movies that I would literally really want to see. So that's something that good I can say about both of you guys. Uh, I haven't been watching much. I've been obsessively playing Cyberpunk 2077 on my computer. Thank God How I got it. I've heard it's not great. Well, it's super, super buggy. Like It barely runs on, on the console. So I'm glad I got it on PC where I can at least... I had to spend hours going through my settings to get it to not drop my frame rates to like 12 or something terrible, but Ouch. it's definitely, you know, maybe wait a few months, you know, if it's on the Christmas list, maybe text your parents and be like, wait Hey, maybe it patches. Wait. yeah, wait for a couple months. Maybe, yeah. maybe your birthday. It, maybe 2021 it's on my Christmas list for PS4. I'm thinking that's going to be a return. So we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Maybe just hold on to it until, you know, March or something when it's actually functional. Uh, my yeah, Christmas wait till, wait till updates. For sure. My Christmas will be interesting. Normally we have like a 50 plus people party for Christmas every year because my, my mom has a gigantic family. But this year we're doing Zoom calls. So that'll be interesting. Can't wait to see my family try and figure out how to use Zoom. Uh, thank you guys so much for watching this episode. Like I said before, if you want to rate us and review us on iTunes, follow us on Spotify, we're on Stitcher, we're on all kinds of podcast apps. So whatever your favorite one is, just type in Movie Change Up and we'll probably be on there. You can also go to facebook.com follow us there and and follow us on YouTube too. If you want to comment live, like we have Cole and Paul who are regular people on here, always giving, giving their thoughts. We really appreciate that. So if you guys want to be part of the conversation and part of the episode, come follow us on YouTube and you can do that. Thank you guys so much for watching. Thanks Joe and Bobby for competing. Congrats Bobby on the win. And thanks a lot, Johnny for helping me out here. You helped me get through some tough, tough calls this episode. Thanks a lot, guys. Hopefully we'll see you guys soon and have an awesome, wonderful, great holiday season. Thanks a lot. Happy holidays, everybody. Happy holidays.